they spend too much time um, looking at screens that don't show them how much beauty there is in the world and how much love there is in the world and how much opportunity there is in the world. And they actually start believing that the, the make-believe world of television is actually a representation of what's really happening in the world. Yeah, to use the words of Mother Teresa, it's fucked. (laughs) Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Paul's guest today is J.P. Sears, who, among many other accomplishments, is a comedian and a YouTuber, where he encourages healing and growth through his humorous, entertaining, and informative videos, which have accumulated over 300 million views. All right. Well, I am super excited to interview J.P. Sears. Actually, we're going to have a half interview, half dialogue hybrid. It'll be something that's totally unique to J.P. Sears, which uh, if you don't know J.P. Sears, then know this. Everything about him is unique. He's always the same, but never the same. How's that for a paradox? I love J.P. Sears. I've uh, J.P. was just reminding me that it was 2001 when he first took a training program from me. And so J.P. worked with me at the Institute for a number of years. He became an instructor for the Czech Institute, traveled around the world teaching for us, and then felt it was time for him to move into elements of coaching that were more in line with what was interesting and motivating and inspiring to him, which I was all for. And as some of you know, he transitioned into being a full-time comedian and all sorts of different things. I've heard that, uh, JP, you've been on video and uh, movies or Thing you know, I don't follow the the media so much, but I get reports all the time that you're popping up in all sorts of amazing places. So, JP, I am totally excited to celebrate your life path, your success, our relationship, and um, I just wondered if you could start by sharing an overview of your development and how your journey took you from being a redheaded kid who didn't enjoy school so much to being an instructor for the Czech Institute to now being quite a famous comedian. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for that beautiful question, my friend. And it is just beyond a a soul-warming pleasure to be connected with you here, talking with you. Just as you mentioned, our history together of over 17 and a half years that I mean, that feels like several lifetimes simply because it's been s- such richness and depth in learning. I mean, I feel like I've I was a boy when I met you, and I yeah. I can be I can honestly say I feel like a very solid man now. Yeah, well, you are, and you are not only a boy, but you were a funny boy. I mean, I used to tell people all the time who were going to take classes with you. I say, oh, you'll love JP. Look out for his dry humor. You'll have to, some of his jokes take about a minute to soak in. And I remember (laughs) even myself, you'd say something in class and it would take me like 60 seconds and I'd break out laughing and everybody else would too. It was like a delayed reaction. And uh, how many, how many great espressos have we had together? Man, I would dare say many, but not enough. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I still have my machine whenever you're ready. I man, I I will get in my car and be there in two and a half days to enjoy one with you. <laughs> I'll keep I, it hot. <laughs> I, I'm gonna in a second. I'm gonna bow down and speak to the actual question you asked. But man, first, I I can't not say. Anytime someone asks me what was what was one of the most pivotal moments in your life, JP. My answer, any kind of interview setting, I love being able to share with 100% honesty. My answer is seeing the way Paul believed in me, because it taught me to believe in myself to an exquisite degree. Because I remember when when I first met you there, July 9th, 2001, uh, I, I was the youngest one in the class, by far the least experienced Yet you saw something in me, and it wasn't like on the surface. You saw a depth in me that I myself hadn't known. And, yeah. and back there, when I, you know, I had just turned twenty years old at the time, you know, you told me, JP, one day you're going to be world famous. You're going to be traveling the world, uh, and you're also going to be teaching for me. And like all those things came to fruition. Yet at the time, like I, I just saw the way you believed in me in it. It's like it, it was more weight on the bar. It challenged me to rise to the occasion of embodying the same level of belief about myself that I saw you having towards me. So that, pardon my language, that fucking changed my life. And thank you for that, my friend. Well, you know, JP, um, that was spirit working through me and, one, I could see you were highly intelligent, um, and I recognized a lot of myself in you, you know, the boredom with typical school and uh, the urge to find something that created more meaning for you. Yeah. And, you know, when, I, when you were in class, you were looking at me and paying attention. You were, like, completely present with me. And I knew that if I have a person in front of me like that, I can teach them everything that I can possibly give them. But, you know, it was interesting. I was I was with you one time. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I think I told you at the time, I said, JP, you know, I just had a vision of we you and I were talking about your work with John McMullen and and in our dialogues on all that. And all of a sudden, I just had a, a very powerful vision of you, and I saw big crowds. And then I started seeing like movie clips, one after the other, of you in all sorts of different locations with big crowds. And I said to you, I said, JP, I said, I have a feeling that you might be as successful or as well-known as Ram Dass one day. And I don't know if you remember me saying that, but I, I said, you, you're, there are, are so many souls that you – are going to be interacting with. It's incredible. And I said, my job in your life is to teach you how to manage four doctors, because what I'm seeing is your life is going to reach a level of complexity that's greater than my own. And you're going to need the basics that I teach you. So you don't just get eaten up by the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, great spirit. Oh man, I'm glad you reminded. I didn't remember that that particular conversation until you just mentioned it. And of course, like yeah, now that strikes me. That's conjured up in the memory bank, and 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 yeah, that I, I'm half baffled by your ability to see that along with like 
I, I guess that living through me, it's just, it's all, it's like the dream and then the dream comes true. Um, and, and the dreamer of the dream, like you in this case, reporting the dream, it's just fascinating how you can see things like that. Well, you know, um, you know, my, my way of living and I do, you know, I've, I've done Tai Chi consistently for, well, since, since about the time I met you and, and was studying with Fong Ha and I came from a tradition of meditation and, you know, uh, I have done, I don't know, 400 shamanic journeys and those things can take the roof off the uh, house. So, um, I, I do have these, uh, things I learned sometimes you got to be careful about how much you believe in them. But in the case of you, it was so visceral. I didn't have any inhibitions about sharing them with you. I almost felt obligated to tell you. Yeah. And, and as I hear myself report to you that I was dramatically impacted by you sharing those things with me, because it, if you kept them to yourself, I don't know that I would have been inspired to really like break out of my old, like small level of belief in myself and really challenge myself. Like JP, why don't you do your best to believe in yourself to the degree that Paul believes in you? So I I think for great reason, you shared those things with me out loud. Well, Um, we're soul brothers, baby. We're soul brothers. I I think you're right. Do you want me to actually answer the question that I haven't answered yet, Paul? Uh, if, if you, if you have time and it's not too stressful, you know, this is, I don't want, I don't want you to feel like you're in another one of your gigs and you got a tight schedule and you have to make everybody laugh. But if you have a minute to tell a little bit of truth, that'd be great. <laughs> For sure. So yeah, the, the snapshot of my journey from, you know, hating school to thriving in the Czech Institute programs, teaching for the Czech Institute, um, you know, I graduated high school and then went to college not knowing what the hell I wanted to study. Turns out I didn't want to study anything in college. So in my my freshman year of college, I, I had, you know, while I was like going to classes, I had learned of your programs through a local trainer at the gym in Bowling Green, Ohio named Jackie Holman. And mm-hmm. she said, JP, you know, I can see you're, you're into exercise and you're you know, you seem pretty intelligent. You might really enjoy Paul Chuck's stuff. I said, cool. What would be the best video course for me to order? And she said, scientific back training. So I ordered that. And at the time it, it came on five different VHS tapes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Dating myself. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, the, from the first time I watched that, that course and I forget how many hours it was, maybe six or seven hours. It's roughly. about seven hours. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't understand anything in it the, the first time through because I didn't have the the vocabulary for it. I didn't know what fascia was. I yeah. didn't know what a transversal spinal muscle was. Yeah. But I was, it's like I didn't need to know the literal details. I just knew at a deeper level, this is for me. So I started skipping all of my college classes so I could study anatomy and the scientific back training, scientific core conditioning. Um, and then not too long after that, I just completely dropped out of college. I was done with it. It's like I, looking back, I can see I had an ability to have an inability to learn about things that I was not passionate about, which yeah, meant like me I, too. I, 
Yeah, it's, it's such a blessing. It scared me at the time. I thought I had like a learning disability. But then as I got into the your programs, for the first time in my life, I was passionate about learning. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. I was studying all the time. And after committing to a full year of studying your correspondence courses and background information to better understand those, then I rocked up to my first class with you in Minneapolis, Minnesota, July 9th, 2001. And yep. And that, that, that nine day experience of at the time what was called uh, Czech practitioner level one that changed my life, as I said a few minutes ago, because I saw the way you were believing in me and the yeah. way you were telling me you saw such big things for me. And it was weird because we didn't even know each other at the time, but we had yeah. just such a, a, a deep dive vertical connection in such a small horizontal amount of time. Um, yeah. And then, then uh, just dancing down the timeline to paint the picture. It was two years after that where, where I had continued going through the, the Czech courses uh, practitioner level two, practitioner level three. I was in the first ever HLC class that you offered, which wow, you know, yeah. at the time it was called NLC rather than yeah. HLC. Yeah. And so, yeah, about two years after our first meeting, you called me up and said, Hey, you want to move out to San Diego and work with me at the Institute? And I thought to myself, that scares the shit out of me. And yes, I do, Paul. <laughs> so, <laughs> couple months later, rocked up, and this was 2004, rocked up to San Diego and started my practice at the Czech Institute and, and shortly thereafter started to te- uh, train to teach uh, the HLC program and got to and work with you each day you were in town. You were traveling like, a, you're traveling like I am now, but you were at yes, the time. Yeah. And, um, Man, so many great espressos and conversations and personal development, just hand in hand with a professional development. And man, so yeah, after seven years of teaching for the Czech Institute, you know, I got the inner calling, which was it's it's time to move on. Yeah. And that scared the shit out of me because I'll... I'll say this, Paul, and then I'm going to shut the hell up. I'm getting long-winded here. But I will say this. To me, it is easy to leave a shitty situation. It's like, that's a no-brainer. You either have to be hypnotized by the transit self-sabotage, or you have to be an idiot to stay in a self-sabotage situation or a shitty situation. But I was in a great situation. I was in, you know, I was getting to travel the world, teach courses, have connection with students all over the world and had a busy one-on-one client practice. But there was an inner calling that said, leave. And and it's, you know, I think when, when we're for what I like to call it for is gumping our way through life, following our heart, following our soul. We only see the next step we're called to. We don't see two or three or 10 steps ahead of us. So I think oftentimes what holds us back from taking a step forward is our fear because we don't see what what 10 steps forward is going to be. We just see the next step like, oh, leave this situation. 
Now, because I was in a great situation, that was scary. It's like I can see what I'll lose, but I can't measure what I'm going to gain. And and one of the lessons that taught me, the willingness to follow the inner call that says, you're in a great situation, JP, and it has served you so well. And it's time to leave. That taught me the lesson that you never want to let the great be an obstacle for the greater. And I think the the greater is always defined by an individual's heart and soul. It's all super individual. And, and you know, that's, and that's number one of my four step model is what do you love enough to change for? And, you know, we call that the dream. And I remember when you told me, um, that it was that you, you felt it was time to go. I said, you know, I want you to follow your heart. Yeah. And I mean, what a great support that was that you gave me. And honestly, like what a great support we can give anyone when we surrender our preferences, when we surrender our agendas and our expectations and what we want from them in order to honor their heart and actually encourage them to honor their heart. To me, that's an act of loving someone. I think an act of controlling someone, which some would say is the opposite of love, an act of controlling someone is trying to keep them conformed to what we want from them and and who we want them to be. But to be able to say, I want you to follow your heart, that is, that's huge in the repertoire of love, in my experience. Well, you know, I've never shared this with you, but it was also scary for me because you weren't just an instructor for the Institute. You and I developed a, a deep connection. And I, as you know, shared my deepest challenges. And you, you were one of the few men that actually has seen me hit bottom and cry due to the stress of all the travel and all the expectations from people and the financial stress of running an Institute. And I always felt, you know, close enough to you to just undress and just be totally with you. And I felt in my heart that I had to be honest with you about the challenges of what looks like success. And so when you were leaving, uh, there there was pain in my heart, not because I didn't want you to go because I didn't want to ever limit your growth, your development, your freedom. And I already knew inside of myself, as we discussed, you were destined for much bigger audiences than you were ever going to get an HLC class. But I just felt like, God, you know, this is the one guy that I can cry with, that I can, that I can just, I can just totally have no worries about um, editing myself. So I have to thank you because, uh, it's it's amazing because, you know, you're a lot younger than I am, but you gave me a leaning post that was that of a, a wise man, a mature man, and you were always able to handle my pain. And mm. I think for most guys your age, it would have probably been scary to see somebody like me in that much pain. Well, to me, it was a beautiful experience, and I, I was so happy to be there. I remember one particular time at the in the – uh, men's locker room at the in, uh, old institute in Vista, you and I holding each other in a hug and you crying. And yeah, that, that that's a beautiful connection. 
I mean, and, and aside from whatever level of support I could give you at the time, it was also a beautiful connection. And and also it, it those kind of things helped humanize you. And, yeah. and they helped me honestly learn more about like, okay, there's a shadow side to living your dream. There's a shadow side to having a name that people recognize and people following you. And, and I would dare say it, 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 it left me better equipped and not, not to be narcissistic and just make you, well, Paul, you're talking about your pain. So let me make it about me, but no, uh, no, I, mean, I, I love it, just, it, I love hearing your, your sharing. Yeah. So it definitely left me better equipped, but, but I think most significantly for me, you being real with me, emotionally raw, honest, and transparent in those times, uh, gave me a deeper connection with you. And I think that's honestly what I would value most about. Honestly, I I would say I probably value those kind of experiences with you far more than any kind of technical knowledge you ever taught me, as great as all the technical knowledge was. Yeah, I remember, too, you know, something that you did uh, on the various times that I opened my heart to you, and, and it was very important for me that you... Uh, that that I never conceal anything from you, um, which I, I try to be very honest with people always, but some people don't handle honesty very well. But I I remember uh, more than one time when I shared painful, deep stuff that I I just felt safe to share with you, and I felt compelled to share it with you because I really felt. I want to make sure JP doesn't realize that, that JP doesn't have the illusion that that notoriety and people wanting you and uh, success and uh, in, in my case occasional money uh, at the time you know I, I reached a point where our, we were doing like two and a half million a year in sales which was a lot of money but God the amount of work I had to do to get it almost killed me and the point I'm leading to is each time. You looked me right in the eyes and you said, thank you for sharing, Paul. Mm. You know, you you said it to me and connected to me in a way that it was my, like your soul was saying, thank you for being honest. Thank you for teaching me how life can really be. And it was such an amazing thing for me to hear because most people get quite scared or reactive or they don't know whether they should run or hug you or wipe your eyes or whatever. But it was, it's, I don't really even, I don't even have words for it. And for me, that's rare, but it was just like, it was almost like your heart was saying, thank you for telling me the truth about you and about life. And, and that, I, I think it's amazing to me to this day that a man of your age, because you were young, you know, you were a young man at that time, could could be with me um, the way the way uh, you'd expect only a wise man to be. Hmm. Well, well, thank you for that, my friend. And yeah, I, I think the temptation, oftentimes, for men and women of all ages, is you see someone who you care most about 
in their authentic pain. And the temptation is to try to change them, fix them, yeah. make their pain go away, try, try to make them somehow other than the way they are, which is truly rejecting them when they need you the most. Yeah. And, and, you know, something is kind of like the mantra in my heart when I'm, when a, a friend, a family member is in deep pain, the mantra is there's no, nothing to fix here only feelings to feel. And I, and I think the, the, you know, when you're the one in the position of lending support, you got to be responsible for managing your own emotions. It's like in those times when you were broken down, if I couldn't manage my own internal environment, I'd be like, shit, I feel too much intensity about Paul's emotional intensity. I can't handle how I feel about his feelings. So I need to change him, make him feel something different. Like, Paul, there's nothing to worry about. Just be happy, you motherfucker. And like, <laughs> just make a joke so you feel different. And, and, and that's really, that's rejecting you. That's rejecting where you're at, all to manipulate you and use you so that I can feel a relief from my own emotional intensity. And that, that's emotional immaturity. And we evolved in there at times. We'll all still be there at times. But I think we can give people a true gift when we can ride the edge of our own feelings, own it, own where we're at, so we can be the stable, connected, loving pillar for someone else. Yeah, I think I think there's a, you know, lear- I've learned the hard way that you know, having worked with a lot of cancer patients and, you know, make, making a living, as you know, I work with people that have all sorts of big challenges, just as you spent years doing. And I think that there's, I think as we grow up spiritually, we come to the realization that there is something much greater than us going on. And if we have trust in the universe or trust in love or trust in the mystery behind it all that ultimately everything works out. I mean, I I think if you look back on your life, just like I can look back on my life, like I can take myself right back to that day in the men's changing room where I just was just like, I didn't know if I could take it anymore. The pressure was so much, but I look at all the amazing things that have happened and all the people who I've been able to share life with and love with and teachings with and uh, having become a daddy again and now about to be a daddy for the third time and and all the joy and, and even the joy of hearing about your success and, and many of my other students have, have achieved amazing things that blow my mind. So if we reach the point where we don't feel like we have to control, but we can trust that there's a beautiful natural unfolding and sometimes it looks scary, but look, being born can be scary. Um, watching a birthing process can be scary. Um, watching people go through a, a relationship death can be scary. But ultimately, I think as we mature, we learn that there's something beyond us that we can reach into for support and we don't have to try to rescue somebody when we really can't rescue them or like you said we run the risk of just trying to change them so we don't have to feel their pain yeah which 
weakens them. I mean, the old analogy we've we've all heard it twelve hundred thousand times. The you know the caterpillar in the cocoon comes out butterfly. You know, just when the world when it thought the world was over, all that bullshit we've all heard, which is so true. But the thing is. If you go in and see the butterfly, like you can tell it's struggling in the cocoon to get out. And if you come along and try to help out, rescue the (laughs) butterfly, you cut the cocoon open really carefully so you don't cut the butterfly and you open the cocoon for it, butterfly will die because you robbed it of the gift of its struggle. We we don't realize, oh, it's the struggle that strengthens the butterfly's wings enough to allow it to fly. And of course, it's got to fly to be able to feed itself and survive. So, man, it is hard watching. I mean, it's kind of easy watching a stranger struggle, sort of. But it is hard watching a loved one struggle. Yet, it's such a gift to allow them to own their struggle without us selfishly intervening meaning so we can manipulate the feelings and and feel a sense of significance like you need me luckily i just rescued you it's like yeah, i just made you weaker yeah you know how how tell us how you got cuz you know when you left me you were going off and you were doing more of your own uh you know, I, you, I think you referred to it as emotional coaching at the time, but I really think it was just a deeper form of life coaching. Sure. Um, and, but how, how did the transition from there to being a comedian happen? I mean, I remember when you first started making videos, um, you know, kind of skits and, and comedies and, and, um, you know, putting, putting a, a, a sideways angle. So people had to look at issues differently uh, because of the way you presented them. Even, even if they didn't like it, it, it's like a lot of comedians do. They, they kind of have a way of making you see things that you maybe don't want to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by when, when I resigned from teaching for the Czech Institute, it was about a year and a half before the the comedian was released in the public light so during that year and a half i was you know running my emotional healing client life coaching practice working with you know tons of people every day and running retreats in various parts of the world and and you know that uh, looking back it's like okay that was that was more training ground. I did. I didn't know that I was even going to move on from doing that, but I was getting more training ground in the human psyche, learning about the the patterns and the issues, the problems, as well as the gifts that we all suppress inside that ultimately need to come out. So I was like going to school for that, like to you know getting a getting extra experience there, and then I. Uh, in early October 2014, I decided, all right, I want to share some perspective through the language of comedy. And it, uh, I, I then released my first comedy video uh, called How to Be Ultra Spiritual, which was really portraying all the ways that, uh, not all the ways, but some of the most common ways that people spiritually bypass 
Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why I decided to do that video was I needed it for my self-therapy. I was noticing the ways that I was spiritually bypassing for years, but only like all of a sudden I'm starting to become self-aware of like, wow, I get really pretentious and think I'm better than people because I meditate longer than them. And, you know, this competitive <laughs> spirit, it's like egoism disguised as spirituality. So I was noticing like, I do a lot of this stuff. I don't really know if other people do it probably, but, but let me make this video. And at the time I thought it would be a real bad idea to let my comedic side out, which has always been a part of me. It just always, yeah. I've always been cracking jokes, class clown. It's always been a strong faculty of mine. But I thought that, no, that'll discredit me. People won't think I, I'm like an emotional healing kind of guy, spiritual teacher. I should be more like Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> but another part of me says, well, do at least one video. So I did one video. And and that caught on uh, pretty quick. It, it circulated around pretty well. And and inside of me, something awakened. Like there was just this, this creative satisfaction that I felt. <laughs> it, yeah. it was just, I mean, I talked about a few minutes ago, how starting to study the Czech Institute material, that was the first time I became passionate about learning. Well, yeah. here with my first... Uh, comedic video that's the first time i became passionate about creating creating like in an artistic sense like i painting music never really been my thing but wow i found a new canvas called video and it seems to like my colors stick to it so i you know fumbling along not knowing what the hell i'm doing not really even knowing my aim or my purpose in the beginning i just kept making new comedy videos uh, much like a newborn colt doesn't really know how it how to walk until it just kind of stumbles around wobbly and after a while it finds its stride so th- that that's what i that's what i began doing and and getting just relentlessly consistent with that but i also just real quick i want to rewind uh back to when i would teach the hlc classes and I've mentioned this many times in different discussions. When I would show up in a city to teach an HLC class, and for, for people who might not know the structure, at least the structure at the time, there were three full days of primarily lecture-style class. So I would be lecturing for roughly 30 hours over the course of a long weekend. And that's 30 hours of all great information. However... Even if you have great information coming at you after 30, you know, 20, 30 hours, it's going to, you know, it's going to get boring just because you're sitting in a chair, even though you're learning amazing things. So I started to use my humor when I was teaching the HLC classes. And, you know, I'd have an audience of somewhere between 20 and 50 people. And, and what I was finding is people learn better. When I'm interjecting humor, sometimes expressing a concept through humor. Sometimes it's me just saying something humorous for the sake of a pattern interrupt to to snap people back and then re-engage them and bring joy to them temporarily. So looking back, I could see, you know, I I don't know how many it was. One time I totaled it up. It was a couple of years before I... um, 
quit teaching, but I, I've taught well over 100 HLC classes. And if you do the math, let's just call it 100. That's 30 hours per class. That's over 3,000 hours in in front of an audience not only connecting to people, but also a lot of that time is exercising the art of using the language of humor to yeah. help people learn and become more aware. That's more than a master's degree. Yeah. <laughs> and this master's degree paid me instead of costing me a hundred thousand. Well, you see, there you go. Maybe that's a trick out of the Paul check playbook. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, go to school? Well, yeah, but, I, I go there to give lectures and get paid. <laughs> well, I know. Well, the other, well, the only difference between this and a real master's degree is I actually learned shit from this that's really helpful. And helping the world. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. And so, um, you know, this, this, I mean, I, I watched it grow. Um, you know, I, I'm busy, so I don't follow everybody's videos. Every now and then someone say, oh, you got to see this video of JP's. And sometimes me and Penny would watch them or me and Vidya and have a good giggle. And I used to always be amazed at like the skits that you would do. I saw one recently, uh, the most recent one I saw, you were dressed up like a woman walking in the woods or something. I was just cracking up. I'm like, I said, I just looked at that. I said, JP's having a damn good time out there. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's just he's becoming a spiritual yogi he's like he'll walk down the town through the middle of town naked and, and that way he knows for sure that whatever the message is 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 coming whether they like it or not <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah if you look the moral of that story is if you want people to pay attention just be naked Yes. Yeah. What I do with my wife every day to get her to pay attention to me. I bet it works. <clears throat> Man, I think I look damn good naked, to be honest with you. And most of the time she agrees with me. Well, you know what? If that's, that's a, isn't it true that if most people reach that level, that their whole life would change? The, the level of nakedness? Just being able to be naked and, and, and look at yourself yeah. and say, damn, that's awesome, you know? Well, yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think oftentimes we look at how we you know, look naked in the mirror and we feel about that the way we actually feel about our heart and our insides. Uh, and of course, it's all connected. So from there, though, you've made it to, you know, I heard you did some stuff for Tony Robbins and uh, someone said you were in a movie too. Is that true? A movie? I don't think so. Um, I mean, there are uh, documentaries, yeah, um, but not not Hollywood movies. There's uh, most recently, I was actually out in LA uh, pitching networks, uh, TV shows. Not sure if any of that's going to get picked up. Who knows? Not going to hold my breath on it. But but yeah, that, that's exciting. And you know what? What's really you know a huge compliment is when people I really look up to when they when they admire my work. Like they have Tony Robbins uh say, JP, I'm a fan of your work. I was like, geez, that like I don't know how to process that. It is pretty and, it is very cool, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it is, but you know what that tells me, like just using Tony Robbins for example, my life trajectory, my my career path, how I help the world, it's not the way Tony Robbins does it. 
Not a, it's no. not exactly the way you do it. No, it, but that's the beauty way. of it. Yeah, and that's how it's yeah. got to be. It, and when when someone like Tony Robbins or yourself can look at what I do and feel inspired and admire that, what that affirms to me is I'm I'm doing my version of their thing. I'm I'm tapping into the the same underground aquifer. Yes, you know, yeah. spirit. spirit. I'm, yeah, that's yeah, spirit. It, it, it comes out through the well of JP. Yours comes out through the well of Paul Check. Tony Robbins, the well of his, and and nonetheless, it, it really feels to me like it's all coming from the same aquifer, deep underground, or deep in the ether, or deep in our heart and souls, wherever it actually is. But it, and that makes that that's such a beautiful connection. Like when I see someone else speaking their truth, and not just their truth, but like you can tell there's a higher truth uh, uh, to what they're saying, I feel a deep connection with that person, even if I haven't met them in person, because I'm doing my best to speak truth as I know it, as you are. And it's just a, it's like a cup of communion. Some people say, let's get to get together for coffee as a way of having communion and connection with people. And another way to do it is to drink from the same cup of truth. Yeah. And, and I would dare say one of the commonalities of drinking from the same cup of truth is you've gone through the dark, scary forest to get there. Kind of like someone shows up and, you know, you, you look at them and you're like, all right, yeah, you've, You've been through your inner demons. You've conquered a lot of fear. You've become very willing to get really uncomfortable going through your dark woods in order to be the servant of a wonderful truth that wants to live through you. It reminds me of a saying from Joseph Campbell, the cave you fear to enter most has the holds the gift you most need. Yeah, I, man. How true is that? Well, you know, and, Joseph Campbell's a he was a very deep, wise dude. He was. I remember uh, the when I was 20. This was a little bit after our first Czech practitioner class, but I was still 20. I I think via email, you recommended for me to check out the Joseph Campbell interview series where Bill Moyer was interviewing him. It's great, isn't it? Well, here's the funny thing. At the time I ordered it and, you know, some VHS tapes dating myself. And it was one of these other like five hour, six hour programs, uh, you know, a, a lot of content. And I watched that several times and it, Nothing stuck with me, but it's like at the time I didn't have the psychological development for it to really click in. Nothing but stuck. I, I just that, that you, nothing stuck that you consciously know. <laughs> well played, well played. <laughs> yeah, but I remember at the time just you know ordering like you recommend. I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea, and watching. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck these guys are talking about. Like Joseph Campbell looks like he's about to die here in the interview series. I think it was towards the end of his life, but man, that, that guy has some eternal truths and man, the, the, that quote, that is just a guiding light quote. I mean, I would dare say if someone's in a place where they don't like their life, 
they feel stuck, stagnant, not not on purposeful. Just write that down. That the cave you fear holds the treasure you seek. Yeah, the cave you the, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you need the most. Is 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 my paraphrase of it. It may not be exact, but that's the yeah. that's the message. And and while we're talking here, I, I wanted to ask you. You know, you turned me on to Bill Hicks, and and you know, you know how focused I am. I didn't really yeah. for me to watch a kind of a relaxing show or people used to always ask me, do you watch this or that? Like, no, I'm freaking busy, man. I'm focused like a laser beam, which yeah. got me through mountains and mountains of material, as you know. But um, when you turned me on to Bill Hicks, I I looked him up and watched a, a documentary on his life and a couple of them actually. And, and man, the guy just one, I just loved the messages of his comedy. I'm like, this freaking guy is telling the truth, man. And I, he has yeah. got brass balls because he's, you know, he went after the Christians real good and and <laughs> and uh, dead honest too. And um, and I loved Bill Hicks. I, I, I of all the comedians that I ever watched, I would have to say he's the one that that I really harmonized with the most and you turned me on to him. And so when I was writing up the questions for our interview today, I thought, geez, I got to ask JP who his comedic influences were. And I assume it must, one must be Bill Hicks, eh? Yeah, certainly. And kind of full circle because Paul Check Jr., your your son is the one that turned me on to Bill Hicks. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I know a lot of people know of Bill Hicks. He died in 1993. Yet, if you haven't heard of his stuff, just look up some of his clips on YouTube. And I know he's got some of his one-hour-long specials on Netflix. And, and and give yourself the gift of watching Bill Hicks. And you you know you have to realize his comedy was in the late 80s and early 90s. So you know, the politics at the time, just keep that in mind and it'll all click in and make a lot of sense. And, and it's like, what in, inspires me about Bill Hicks and why I w- would would certainly consider him an influence is he's more than a comedian. Yeah, it's I know. Like he's, yeah. yeah, it's like he's w- one part comedian and one part teacher. So he was the first example that I saw of someone using comedy to deliver a deeper message. You know, it's like you can lecture someone on a given concept for an hour. And that's awesome. We need that too. Or you can speak in the language of comedy for an hour and deliver the same messages. And I, and I think what I learned through Bill Hicks is I was watching him do his thing and also getting curious, like, why? Why Why is he a comedian? What's the purpose of this? What I eventually learned was when, when someone is speaking in the language of comedy, when they're delivering a message through the language of comedy, people they're talking to, their psychological defenses are relatively disarmed. Because, yeah, you know, yeah. it's the language of comedy. So it's playful. So it's an ethos that says, it's safe here. There's nothing to defend against. This is playful. Everything's safe. Everything's good. Meanwhile, the, the actual message that enters someone's psyche through the vibration of playfulness and humor, that can, that can penetrate. 
not to brainwash people, but it can penetrate deeply for the purpose of that person being able to consider it. And whether I want to adopt this idea or reject it, but at least they can consider it. But if I were to, if you take a Bill Hicks message or a message that from my comedy, but you just speak it straight to a person in a serious tone, maybe even as sincere as you are, what you're going to run up against more often than with when you're using humor is someone's psychological defense mechanism comes up, they get defended. Yeah. Because one thing about the human ego is it always wants to maintain its center of gravity. Yeah. And, and what I mean by uh, go ahead. I was just going to say it, it. It has its own paradigm that it, it will defend heavily, <laughs> whether yeah, it's whether it, it's right or not. <laughs> for sure, the ego says I have my beliefs and I want to believe my beliefs. I'm more interested in believing my beliefs than I am of what's true. So we just believe that what we believe is actually true. And that comforts us. Everything feels familiar. So if if there's a new message that comes in, even if it would be more beneficial for us, we will resist it because to take that on, that would shift our center of gravity. I mean, it's just kind of like, Paul, if I came up beside you and started pushing against your shoulder, you know, your your lateral muscles would contract Mm -hmm. because naturally your physiology wants to maintain its center of gravity. Same thing with our psychology. It wants to maintain a center of gravity. So, man, the comedians, humor, it's a powerful way to influence people. And, and like, I'm not smart enough to, like, see all this and say, I want to do that. I'm, I'm Forrest Gump enough to realize, oh, shit, I guess I've been doing that. So I'm, like, I'm learning what I've been doing. I'm not really intellectual enough to premeditate and set out on this course. Um, but there's, I I think to do diligence to humor, there's also a shadow side. Humor can be used to help. It can be used to harm. You know, you can, you you can say things to amuse people or you can say things to hurt people. Either way you can get a laugh. We all know making fun of people. And, and given that humor is, powerful. We can use it constructively or destructively. And I think the plight of a comedian is, is the comedian using the humor to connect with his or herself or disconnect from their self? Are they using the humor to become more aware and to transform their pain? Or are they using humor to try to escape their pain? And I think we, you know, we've all seen examples of comedians who can be world-class like Mitch Hedberg, like Robin Williams. And they, they either take their own life, die of a drug overdose. You might watch a comedian and be like, wow, they're, he's funny, but man, he's dark. That's just heavy. Yeah. Or you can watch a comedian like Bill Hicks, present day Dave Chappelle and realize like, this is a person who's, they're woke. They're, they're using humor to understand themselves and transmute their pain, letting the, the the humor be an alchemist that connects with pain and transforms the pain into a more powerful realization to then share with the world. Um, so it, it, it can be used either way. And of course, I do my very best. I'm not perfect, but I do my best to use humor to heal myself, grow myself, and and invite other people to do the same. 
Well, you know, uh, I know this won't be out there for you, but ha- by the way, have you uh, happened a chance to read or listen to on audiobook Larry Dossie's book, One Mind? I have not. Oh, well, I think you'd dig it because it's just loaded with all the current scientific research showing that there is only one mind and that we're all interacting with that one mind. We, our ego creates the illusion that we, uh, that our mind is our mind, but the research and the evidence is just shockingly, uh, evidential that we're all really expressions of the one mind. And so it turns out that. The one mind is Donald Trump's mind. Well, exactly. And that, that's, that's what makes the research so scary. But, uh, uh, and that, you know, there's a deep truth in there. And I've, I've, I don't want to go down the political path, but I have said many times, look, it scares the hell out of me that that person is president, but it also makes me happy that now our shadow is being brought into the light so we can actually see what we've been denying as a collective. I couldn't agree more. But uh, where I was going with that is that what what I was trying to point out is that the and I I you know I I have these experiences of one mind. That's how I had those visions of JP. Right? It's just I my life and JP's life are intertwined, just like JP's life, Paul's life, and all the bears and all the creatures of the world are intertwined. But the ego can only process a tiny amount of information, so the rest of it, the rest of the truth remains unconscious. But what I was going to say is that when JP's doing this kind of comedy to heal himself, by definition of one mind, JP's healing everybody else, especially those with similar uh, wounds to heal or similar um, ways of awakening, right? Your awakening is my awakening. My awakening is your awakening. And so I think that your comedy is really almost – it's it's a form of distance healing for 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 people that might be watching you like i watch you on youtube or something and i could be a thousand two thousand three thousand miles away but the energy and the presence of jp and the message of jp touches that part of me that also needs that healing and to the degree we share the same wound then the same medicine is on the table mm. yeah that's trippy <laughs> And certainly true, man. Yeah, it's, I think what I heard you say, you know, someone in Australia, they, you know, a video like how to get offended pops up where I'm portraying self-victimization. Yep. You know, we blame other people. It's a pattern that, you know, we all live through. But as I've learned to recognize that in my life, and instead of let that be an unconscious pattern, it becomes something I actually play out on video to invite other people who have that same pattern within their psyche. Maybe their lives are limited because of it, but it gives them a mirror to essentially see themselves in it. And and I guess that is distance healing. It is. And and, and the nice thing too about the the medium of podcast video audio is they create a parallel time track because I could watch a video that JT, JP did five years ago right mm-hmm. now, and the energy and the presence and the message is all of a sudden present right here, right now. So it allows us to paradoxically be free from the bondage of the arrow of time. Yeah. 
who who else uh, was a, a, a an influence on you? If there were others besides Bill Hicks that maybe have crept into your soul and are now speaking through you, you know, not all. There, there's other comedians who I really, you know, I love their work. Like Bill Burr. Do you, do you know who Bill Burr is? No. Oh man, he's just a demented, wise son of a bitch. You gotta watch his. <laughs> he's on Netflix. Um, watch Bill Burr's um, special. It's uh, it's not his most recent special, but his previous two specials, just works of art. Now, I think Bill Burr, he, he has a purpose to his comedy. Yeah, I, I don't think it's as unapologetic as, say, like a Bill Hicks. But Bill Burr's cool. But uh, my point was, there's a lot of comedians that I think are awesome. But I, I don't really feel too influenced by them. And I, I do that for a reason. In fact, I don't watch that much stand-up comedy myself. Because I'm, I'm in a phase that... The past year, I've been touring around doing a lot of live comedy shows. So it's a it's a relatively new thing for me, which basically is my way of saying, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I'm figuring it out. Well, but it's worked I'm so loving, far. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I'm loving it. I really am. But what, I, what I'm in my own inner process, what I'm doing is wanting to continue to figure out and refine and develop my version of live comedy. I don't want to do other people's versions. So what I'm finding is it actually feels therapeutic for me to not watch what a lot of other people are doing because it's like I, I'll get too influenced by their way. And, and a lot of these stand-up comedians, they're, they're very true to the art form. Yeah. stand-up comedy mm-hmm. it, and i'm not and i don't have a desire to be it's a, you know i'm in a really blessed position where when i rock up to a comedy club or a theater the the place is filled with people who already know me they're, they're not coming to see some stranger do comedy yeah. so what that gives me the ability to do is to be jp in front of them rather yeah, that's- than I think that's perfect. I'm I'm proud of you for that because most people uh don't have enough confidence in themselves to be themselves, so they have to kind of cut and paste. Um yeah. you know, and I've seen this happen even in my own life where I remember one time I was giving a lecture in uh London, England at a naturopathic college and I had the a shocking experience. I was standing on stage and there was probably 250 people in the audience. And I counted six guys with bald heads wearing DeSoto shirts and shorts. (laughs) And I thought, my God, this is freaky. And the director, uh, you remember Alex McKenzie? Sure. Yeah. Alex comes up to me on one of the breaks. She goes, did you notice that there are six people in the audience? that look like they're your twin brothers wearing the same clothes that have their heads shaved. And they're even wearing, at that time I was wearing Birkenstocks and almost every one yeah. of them was wearing, I'm like, what is going on? And it was actually almost scary for me. I'm like, wow, people are like morphing me. And, and I never had any desire 
for that at all. My mission, as I think you know, is as you hear me say, don't believe a word I say, go out and try it for yourself. I'm just here to show you what worked for me. And and if you can test it and it doesn't work, come back and tell me. I'll be the first one to change it if you got something better. So to see that happening, uh, it was freaky. And, and, and so I'm saying I'm, I'm proud of you for walking your own path because that's how novelty comes into the world. You, you know, what you're doing could change comedy. It could create a whole new way of relating to comedy. It, 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 like it's truly a spiritual path because you're alone in it. Yeah. Well, man, I appreciate you saying those words. They very much reaffirm what I feel is true for me where, you know, I'm at times for a couple minutes at a time, maybe 10 minutes at a time, whatever it is when I'm on stage, it looks like I'm doing stand-up comedy. And then I'm bleeding out outside the realm of the quote unquote art form of stand-up comedy. And I'm doing another type of comedy, or I'm just speaking a sincere message with no fucking punchline. But it's, it's, I have permission to be me, not to be a comedian, but to just be me. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, that, that feels really good. And do you know, um, uh, do you know of the channeler named Paul Selig? No. So I got introduced to him through Aubrey Marcus, a mutual friend of ours. Right on. Went into, you know, Aubrey was doing a podcast with Paul, uh, Paul Selig. And then I did a podcast with Paul Selig on mine to give him more exposure. He's such a great, amazing message. He had a new book coming out and, and Paul taps into what he calls his guides, which allowed him to read people or just speak really pure truth. I I think if you read Paul's stuff or listened to him, you would, you'd hear the singing bowl of truth resonating. But anyway, when, when Paul Selig did a reading on me, you know, my my question to him was like, where's my blind spots? Uh, can you help me see my blind spots so I can remedy those? And and he you know, tapped into me and and he said, you compare yourself to other people a lot, JP. You pretend like you don't. You you act like you don't give a shit, but you really do. And, and this is on my podcast and. And I wanted him to be real, but I'm just like, oh, fuck, you're right. Jesus Christ, I do all that, too. And I, I do <laughs> pretend like I don't. Ah! But, you know, one of the things, Paul, what, what Paul told me is, it is, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, it's stupid for me to compare myself to other people because he said, JP, you're on your own landscape. Yeah, you're, you are. You're, you're pioneering new territory. I'm like, man, that's... I guess so. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to be arrogant saying that, but it's like, yeah. It's not arrogant. Yeah. It's, 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 it's accepting the reality of who you are, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It, amen. So, you know, I, the, the more I can, I guess, unapologetically do things my way and learn pure dimensions of what my way is, whether it's video or on stage, um, I think the better service I am to the world. So long story short, I, I, I'm careful about guarding myself against impurities. And I think if I watch 
if I get too influenced by other comedians, then I, I start to, you know, I might conform to their art form, which is fucking awesome. But it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm on my own landscape here. I need to do my art form. Yeah. You'd probably find yourself getting heavy. I think if you did that. Um, yeah, I think you'd, because the, the more you do that, the more tendency there is to start relying on external sources of your own message and then you lose yourself. Yeah. I think, you know, me, I, I give references wherever I believe a credit is referenced. I mean, I always want to leave a, a trail of this is, I learned this from so-and-so, but I've always been on my own journey as you well know, because you spent years sure. with me, but to, to, to take, and acknowledge the people that I learned for things from, but also be completely responsible for my own way of interpreting the material and refining the material and integrating the material. And, you know, it's, I've uh, stirred the shit a lot of times because the message that I bring is, oh, by the way, whatever you're doing here, it doesn't fucking work. <laughs> That's why I'm well, here. We, if it works, we just want you to validate us, Paul. God damn it. Speaking of validation, you know, my my next question I had for you is I, I know you know this. There it's a I th I believe it's a lot of responsibility to not only be a comedian, but to have as much social access as you do. Uh, have you felt the weight of the responsibility of knowing you you not only influence people, but that some people may uh, really not see your humor and take it personally. Someone called me up one time and said, oh, my God, you know that JP's having to hide in Costa Rica because some people took something <laughs> he said on television very wrong. So, Oh, man, that was one for the books. Yeah. So tell me about the weight of, of delivering this level of truth because, you know, people don't always want to hear the truth. <laughs> yeah. You know – the usually the 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 weight isn't a weight usually it's a levity usually it's it's just continual upliftment and expansion uh and it honestly feels like a privilege where where I'll, I'll once in a while run into the weight and by the way you know 4 years ago when i started to get more exposure i would feel the weight a lot more often but yeah you know, so luckily i've been learning and getting stronger and, you know, holding my center. So the weight usually comes when I start to think that I'm who other people think I am. Yes. Yeah, that's that's, losing myself. Yeah. That's, that's tricky business that see for me, when people would say, Oh, you're the Swiss ball guy. You're the medicine ball guy. I, I used to find that very irritating. I'm like, okay, that's the video you've watched. And then they would be telling me yeah. what my opinions are. I'm like, <laughs> Uh, you've got about a hundred more videos to even approach what I actually teach. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> that reminds me a few months ago, I was doing comedy shows in Seattle and I'm, uh, I think it was like a Saturday morning. I was at Whole Foods eating breakfast and I have this big, uh, you know, Whole Foods dish of eggs and bacon. And uh, a lady comes up to me and says, you're the vegan guy, aren't you? Uh -huh. And I looked down at my bacon and then back up at her and I just said, yes. <laughs> just amused the hell out of me. Um, but yeah, it, it becomes, 
but but like what I heard you say is you had awareness. Like you're you're not at least most of the time you're not who other people think you are. And no, it, 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 you you know you're not the Swiss ball guy. That's like one drop in the ocean of you. Yeah. Um, yeah. At times, I would notice myself starting to think I'm who other people think I am, and I start to align myself with expectations. What do people want to see from me? Yet, you know, when I bounce into those places every here and there, I love to bring myself back to center with the one commandment that Moses forgot to write on the stone tablets, which by the way, if he would have written them on paper, maybe he would have lived longer carrying those fucking heavy stones. But uh, the commandment of amuse thyself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that stay, is, stay true to yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, because I'm functioning in the, the language of comedy a lot of times, when I'm, you know, the wrong question is, what, what will other people think is funny? The right question is, what do I think is funny? Yes. Because that, that takes me in the direction of being true to myself, helping me reconcile my own inner stuff through through my work and and w- anyway when i can stay relatively centered i i don't feel too much weight and responsibility now recently i've i i've started to feel a level of responsibility in a in a good way realizing you know across social media i have several million followers i've got i don't know what it is at this point it's it's 400 million online video views. Jesus Murphy. That's a lot. Yeah. And so I realized like that, that, that JP, you have an influence like it or not, you have an influence and, and I do like it. So I realized like part of my responsibility is to, in a way, like give back. I mean, yes, keep doing what I'm doing and let that expand and do new things, but also give back and, dare I say the charitable sense, like, so recently I've aligned with Charity Water and their whole thing is drilling wells in different African and Asian parts of the world to give people access to clean water who just have diseased bacteria infected water. It's really atrocious. So, you know, I've been, I launched my campaign uh, less than a week ago and we've already uh, accumulated over fifty thousand dollars in donations for charity water, with it, which is massive. That means five new communities can now have access to clean water. I'm proud of you, man. Thank you. Yeah. It's, well, hell yeah, man. And by the way, if anybody wants to join me, and what I like to say is, give yourself the gift of giving. You can check out uh, the website cwtr.org/jp, and cwtr is abbreviation for Charity Water. So cwtr.org/jp. So that that that's one of the like responsibilities that I think it would have started to get heavy if I ignore the the give back in a real way jp like you it, make a, a video or two and you can raise tens of thousands of dollars like that for people who who don't even have the privilege of spending their life energy on self-realization because all their life energy and time goes towards self-preservation 
And they're not even able to do that because they just have clean, shitty water. Yeah, you know, I... I no. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to get on another little rant, which I'll... Please, I'll pause. I'd love to hear what you would say. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, that one of, one of the things that I find challenging is, you know, the amount of money that the United States spends on its defense budget and, Jesus. you know, and all the the nationalism, which, you know, certainly has a bonding effect, but it can also be, as I'm sure you probably know and agree, a, a disease. And when we, when we look at uh, the fact that there's almost 2 billion people in the world that don't have a closet, don't have a change of clothes, don't have food, don't have water, it's, it's hard for me. I mean, I feel a level of connection to life in the world and I've had very, very profound experiences that I won't go into now, but I've, I'll just summarize it. I've experienced being so connected to the planet and all the life forms on it that I've, I've simultaneously felt countless people giving birth to babies, having orgasms through sex, while at the same time feeling people dying and feeling people starving and, yeah. and 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 there's these, some of these experiences, JP, and these these experiences uh, are often without any psychedelic medicines. I had one in Toronto that was just like it was so powerful; it was more powerful than anything I've ever had happen on on a shamanic journey. And I, I was doing uh, the Indians uh, stand like a tree type meditation where I just was tired, I was jet lagged, and I had to give a whole pile of lectures. And I was out for a walk, and I just saw this little slot a grass with some trees between a couple of hotels and I just my soul just pulled me over there and I just leaned up against the tree and just went into a state of meditation and all of a sudden I'm in an ambulance in the back and I've like got a gunshot wound and then and then I'm the driver of the ambulance and I could feel his heart racing with the tension of having to drive that fast then I'm uh, in a police car, then I'm in bed making love passionately and having my vagina eaten, and I'm then I'm yeah, you know I got my funny bone right there. You having your vagina eaten? No, I love that. Yeah, it was, it was, I didn't. I didn't think you'd say that tonight, Paul. Well, you know, I'm talking to JP. I've all, I'm always honest. <laughs> And, and and then I was a kid getting beaten up by its father, and then I'm somebody falling downstairs. Then I'm an old person who feel uh, who feels so dark and so afraid of what's going to happen next and and the pain of looking at the world and seeing it in their eyes falling apart and all this is happening at once and it was so fucking intense i felt like i was being eaten alive like i was just going through a black hole and i was able to bring myself to the consciousness to say to myself in the moment if this is happening then i want to know where penny is because Penny, Penny's sort of a, a, a lightning rod for me. And sure enough, in a, the, almost as fast as I thought the thought, I saw Penny walking down the street. And she was walking into the door of the hotel we were staying in. And she was carrying uh, bags of food in each hand. She'd just gone shopping. And I thought, I, I have to go check to see if this is me hallucinating or if this is really happening. So I, I came out of the meditation, did my closing prayer and practically sprinted the two blocks to the hotel, went up the 17 floors to Penny. And I said, Penny, 
what were you just doing in the last little while? She says, I, I was just shopping. I said, did you just come into the hotel a few minutes ago? She said, yes. I said, were you carrying a couple of bags of groceries? She said, yes. And I'm like, okay, I, this this was real. And when I was a kid and I used to have these out-of-body experiences, I didn't know you know, what I was having was a remote viewing experience. I used to go look around the barnyard and, and I would try to identify things because I thought I was going crazy. And then I'd go out and lo and behold, there was exactly the ax that I saw or the chainsaw or whatever. And and so, you know, when you, when you connect, when, when this, when we get to the point where, where our ego will let go enough to, to get to a deeper truth and you start connecting to the reality of the fact that all of us are really one being, each human being is like a cell in a living organism we'll call humanity. And to think that almost a third of us are starving and and no one, very few, not no one you're helping. And I, and I actually have a client who does the same thing, buys up water wells to protect them from corporations so people can get clean water. But it's painful for me. It really is. And, and, and when I see all this nationalism and, and Donald Trump going off about building more borders and excluding more people, it, it just about breaks my heart sometimes. So I, I'm just sharing that because I'm proud of you for uh, opening your heart like that. I wrote that website down and uh, either tonight or tomorrow morning, I will go donate some money. Oh, awesome, brother. I, I appreciate you being touched by it and, and joining the, uh, joining the cause, man. I, I love hearing that. And there was something years ago, I think I would read it out loud at some of the first HLC classes I was teaching. It was, um, Chief Seattle. No, it was, it was from the Dalai Lama. Um, who might be Chief Seattle reincarnated in someone else for all I know. And and I'm I'm not going to remember the right words, but right. the Dalai Lama was the Dalai Lama was talking about humanity in, in much the same light that you are, and it, really how we're all one, and and helping yourself helps other people, helping other people helps yourself, and, and he raised the point like, okay, let's just say that you're hammering in a nail, and, and you accidentally miss the nail. And hit your thumb. Your thumb's injured. Now, now your other hand's going to come over and and nurture your injured thumb. It's going to help out because your right hand sees your left hand as itself. It's part yeah. of the same thing, yet it's somehow a different expression of the same thing. But the wisdom of the the our physiology says, yes, we're all one. Let me my good right hand, let me come over and help out my injured left hand. Well, we've got some injured left hands in different parts of the, the world. I mean, some in the U.S., but you take some of the worst problems in the U.S., and they look glorious compared to what goes on and isn't reported in, uh, you know, some other countries on the other side of the world. So it just in one one case that has really touched me you know we've got some injured left hands that don't have water to drink so you know in comes the right hands who's got some strength to to lend some support and and really i think the more we can really drink in the wisdom that you're speaking of that 
we have one mind, we're, we're truly all one. And not just getting airy-fairy, ultra-spiritual, like abstract language. Like, yes, there's that reality, but also like really practically we're all one. When we can realize like, hey, if I've got my basic needs met, like, yeah, I want to keep supporting myself and expanding my life and just going after a glorious life. I'm not going to apologize for that. But as I do that, if I can remind myself, let's let's occasionally reach over and, and help out a part of me that expresses itself through strangers on the other side of the world who are very much as me as I think I am. They're just a hand of mine that I've never seen before. But I, I think that really connects us. And it, honestly, it's one way to help make the world a better place. Yes. You know, um, we touched on this a little earlier. I think that a lot of comedians are helping awaken us to our own shadow nature. And I think that comedy also can can deliver other messages that may not be shadow in nature. Have you found, if you look back or if you just reach into your own soul nature, is is have you noticed that there's a a, a theme, uh, a, a message, or a, uh, something coming through you that has a specific? Like, if I watched all of JP's comedy videos that I could watch, would I find that there was a connecting theme in there? Yeah, uh, I think so. And I think the connecting theme is self-acceptance. Yeah, that's great. Because it's so needed. It, it, it is. And, you know, I, I think healing really has to do with slicing through the psychological scar tissue of us only being willing to accept who we think we should be slicing through that to genuine self-acceptance. Um, so, you know, whether it's me portraying spiritual bypassing techniques, because, you know, we don't accept who we really are, so we think we need to become more significant, so we bolster our ego through noble-looking spiritual practices and then hide behind the nobility of it so we can pretend like our ego isn't just being egotistical. But, like, all of that is, like, self-rejection but if we if we can shed through that you know real like ram Dass would say you can't get out of a jail you don't know you're in so we learn what the jail of spiritual bypassing looks like so that we can get out of that jail and into self-acceptance or or maybe in, in other videos it wouldn't be spiritual bypassing but uh, portraying ways that we project our pain onto other people. I did a video called passive aggressive relationship techniques. And in that is <laughs> like, you know, uh, teaching people like, here's how to have the best passive aggressive relationship. So all of our undealt with shit that we project onto our life partner or in our relationships, whether it's passive aggressiveness, belittlement, cold shouldering, you know, contempt, stonewalling, all the things that we all do at times. But but those are all those passive aggressive relationship expressions are all misdirected pain that we have inside. And it's misdirected because we haven't accepted it yet. Yeah. And and because we haven't accepted it yet, 
We haven't been able to feel it and flow it and, and let the pain run through our emotional digestive system so that it can just leave and we can like extract out of it what we need and then shit out the rest. But we're constipated. So I, I think really awakening to what, what individuals need to accept about themselves would be the common theme of uh, my work. And I would also add to that, like, not, not everybody, not all 7.5 billion people will, will resonate with needing to self-accept uh, w- with everything I do in each video. And that's probably why I do multiple videos and hopefully, uh, yeah, share enough for everybody to learn a little something and maybe become inspired to like laugh at their dogma. Like, Holy shit, I do that too. And now I can laugh at it instead of being ashamed of it, which means now I'm not so so self-identified with the the dogma. So I can like differentiate me from the dogma. Therefore accept me a little bit. Well, the the neat thing too, is if you're laughing at it, i.e. the individual watching the comedy, it means that what was potentially in the unconscious has now risen up into the conscious. So you're recognizing it. And there, there's the identification of the jail you didn't know you were in. And if you can, if you can be introduced to your jail cell by someone with a sense of humor, it's easier to take. And at least then you can start looking for the key. Something you, you said earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt you, you know, talking about the ego, you know, most people don't realize that the ego construct is largely made up of other people's ideas, starting with mom, dad, brother, sister, school, teachers, society. So, you know, largely what the ego is, sometimes it's referred to as an idea plex, but most of those ideas are not our own. And it's not really until we feel the weight of the pressure of other people's expectations. And hopefully that pushes us into ourselves or inspires us to say, well, who am I really? And what do I really want to do? Which is why I tell people, if you want to grow spiritually, then choose something that you love to do enough to, to, to be consistent and to really get your juices flowing. Because the challenge of the hero's journey is real, even when you're in love with the journey. And the challenge of not going on the hero's journey is real, because then you have to deal with uh, not living your own truth. But I think, yeah. I think that because the ego is largely made of other people's ideas, it's not until we do the kinds of things that you're talking about right here that we really break out of the, uh, the, the chrysalis or the, or the shell of the ego. And I think that's there specifically to create the resistance we need to get uncomfortable enough with the fact that we're not really adding novelty to the world or anything unique or expressing our own god-given potentials until we break through the the uh the shell of the ideas that weave us into a perception of ourselves that often is so inauthentic that it hurts to carry the damn thing yeah and i think part of the problem is, is people keep drugging that pain instead of embracing it you know the alchemists teach to sit with your pain, sit in it, soak yeah. in it, and really connect to it, or you'll never learn what you're supposed to learn. And I, I think that that uh, you know your comedy is is a great opportunity for someone to be introduced to that reality 
with a giggle, which is a lot better than, you know, the third divorce or the fifth time you've gotten fired <laughs> and still thinking it's everybody else's problem, you know? Yeah, man, amen to everything you just said. You're, uh, Paul, I think you're aware of the, the, uh, Jungian psychologist author named James Hollis. Oh, I love, love, love his work. Yeah, I'm reading his oh, book on uh, tracking the gods right now. It's the best book on mythology I've ever read. Cracking, cracking the gods. Is that new? Uh, tracking the gods. Tracking. I don't. Is, is that a new book? Of I his? don't know how old it is, but it, it. You know, I've read a lot and studied a lot. You remember, I was teaching you to study mythology 15 years ago, and um. I, I've 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 studied so much myth, but I had questions, deep questions, and um, I was asking my soul to guide me to the answer to these questions. And all of a sudden, one day, I was looking for something completely different on Amazon, and you know how it shows you other books down below what you're looking for, and I just yeah. saw the cover image, and the cover image pulled me, and it just said, "Look at me." And I saw the title of the book and, and I ordered it and just saying, I got something tells me I got to look into this. And I'll tell you what, just the introduction was worth, uh, you know, there was more meat and potatoes in the introduction than there is probably in about 10 other books on myth. So I highly recommend the book tracking the gods. Now, for those of you that don't have a background in mythology, it might be a very deep read, but JP, I think, yeah. I think you'll, it'll, it'll, it'll <laughs> light your hair on fire. <laughs> Yeah, that's man. I need a little more red in my hair for sure. And, <laughs> and isn't James Hollis like his message is divine, so on point, so wise? But isn't he a beautiful writer? Very as good. Well, very so good. poetic. Yeah, he can pack a book into a sentence somehow. <laughs> he he takes me into very deep contemplative meditations. I mean. I've been trying to read this book for weeks now, and it's not that big of a book. You know, it's just a small book. But I, I find myself going into trance states and, and having deep explorations of one sentence and writing sometimes pages of notes. And, and like I've had like five or six podcast ideas pop up out of one or two paragraphs. I'm like, and I, I'm actually going to try to interview him on my podcast. I had Penny check to see if he was still alive, and he is. So, you know, another guy that's deep like that is James Hillman. Did, well, I haven't, haven't seen his stuff. Um, oh, check his books hey, out if, on the soul. If, James Hillman. Yeah. If you want uh, – just kind of side talk here. If, if you need an introduction to James Hollis – um, you were interviewed by a mutual friend of ours named Paul Dolman. Yes, yeah. Um, Paul Dolman has had James Hollis, I think, twice on his podcast. So he probably has an inside track to get in touch with him. But James is amazing. And, and, um, and something I've gotten from James Hollis's work is this, this reverberating message that says, your soul is so wise yeah. that if you're living off purpose, if you're not living your life, if you're living a life of expectations, parents' dreams, societies, values, expectations, whatever it is, if you're not living your life, your soul is so wise and it loves you enough that it will make you feel depressed. Yeah. Or just it will make you feel like shit. 
to create the motivation, you know, to propel you on the hero's journey of leaving home. And of course, it's scary. It's scary to like leave the coffin of one's comfort zone. It's scary to leave the the external validation of doing what our parents think we should do and our teachers. But when 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 we're there not living our life, you know, thank God we're we're blessed with the discomfort of depression or just feeling discontent because we're not fulfilling our purpose. And I think that discomfort eventually becomes great enough that the risk of going out into the unknown and finding like, what is my mind? What are my ideas? What do I want to do? I don't know, but I'm starting to look like the the risk to not go after that becomes greater because it, we get so much discomfort of avoiding the pursuit of our own life and our own ideas. So I, I, I think that message of James Hollis is so great. When we are really uncomfortable, it might be depression or any other gift that we're given to try to wake us up and say like, all right, you're not living your life. Go, go find your ideas, go shed some of the scar tissue of other people's ideas that's still clinging to you. I think that's really cool because that can help us see pain and dare I say at times misfortune. It can help us see those as lessons to change something. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, my, my experience of the soul uh, is that it's not that it gives us pain. I believe the soul is, is God within. In other words, what we call God is, you know, a, a great description I use for help to help people understand God is God is a sphere whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. Can you pick the? That doesn't make sense to my mind, Paul. Well, that, that's probably why it's a great description. Well, you know, the thing is, is that uh, if you if you can make sense of God, then you've already turned a symbol into a sign. You've killed the mystery. Yeah, and that's what happens in religion. This is why we have so many problems. And look, there's thirty two thousand branches of Christianity now, all claiming to have the truth. Right? That's what happens when you encapsulate a mystery and and deify it as an object so you know when you're look like like i said saint francis of assisi said what you're looking for is what's looking well most people that takes you into a a a, a sort of a well into an emptiness where the mind can't really wrestle with that but if you imagine a sphere like if you're holding a crystal ball in your hand if you looked at it objectively, you could mathematically measure it and say, well, a sphere has a center. Here it is. And here's the circumference. It's six inches in circumference. Its center is here. But when you say, okay, now imagine you're holding a sphere, but the center is nowhere. Excuse me. Its center is everywhere and its circumference is nowhere. So all of a sudden you're holding something that's completely unbound it's there without being there. It's everything and nothing at once. But when 
when that manifests itself in, to use a Hindu term, Maya, in the grand illusion inside of a being, Steiner said anything that has an inside and an outside has a soul, even an atom. So he described the soul starting at, at the material soul, becoming a biological soul, becoming an intellectual soul, becoming a uh, – his next level is the awareness soul, which is when we begin to question our own beliefs honestly. And that's when we start breaking out of the shell of social conditioning and the ego actually starts to authenticate itself. But it has to be brave enough to ask, is this really true? Is this belief about God really true? Is my dad's belief that if you don't have $100,000 in the bank, you'll never make it in life really true? Do I really have to be such and such kind of person to be successful? Do I really have to work 60 to 80 hours a week like a lot of the business gurus say to be successful? So then we have the creative soul. And, and I see you very much alive in your creative soul. And then we have the intuitive soul. and then when we break through and, and we, we come to spirit soul union, where we become one with all that is, which, which is classically referred to as an enlightenment experience where we become one with everything and, and, and can experience the joy, the pain, the beauty and the mystery. But when you're there, you can't explain it to anything to anybody because you cannot describe a merger of subject and object because there's no longer a, an object to be witnessed. You're, you're now one with all that is. And so there, this is the Tao that can't be spoken. So for me, the soul is God within us, within the illusion of individuality. But my point being is that I don't think the soul gives us pain. I think the soul allows us to experience what we're authentically creating in ourselves and in the world, yeah. which is why I say love is a boomerang. <laughs> Be careful how you toss it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, amen to that. I, I, I certainly resonate with that. I mean, much like a, a parent allowing its, uh, their children to experience the consequences of their actions. Exactly. Their yeah. Inaction. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you, you you become uh, someone who repeatedly does things that cause pain for yourself and others, but blame other people. Exactly, but yeah, it's like our our our, our soul allows us to experience that rather than somehow enabling us and erasing it away, which would really rob us of the lessons of learning how to honor ourselves and our life in a better way than we currently are. Absolutely. You know, I want to jump forward because we've covered some of the questions I wanted to ask, but I want to make sure that while I've got you here, I get to some of these uh, deeper things, not deeper than we're going, but other deeper things that I think are, I just felt when I wrote these questions, I just asked my soul to guide me. And and I, I really feel that I want to ask you a couple of these questions. So, you know, comedians at their core are visionary artists. Artists throughout human history have been some of the key visionaries that usher in new myths without which society or culture uh, may self-destruct. So my question is, are there elements or contents that you feel inspired to share through your comedy as a means of supporting some form of social cultural transformation into a more empowering myth for humanity at this time? Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. About a 
uh, most, I mean, here's a prime example. Uh, as of uh, us doing this recording in mid-December, about a week ago, I put out a video called, um, the hell did I call it? It, it, was, it was exploring the controversy of the song Baby It's Cold Outside being taken off the radio. Have, have you heard about that controversy? No, not Paul? at all. Yeah, no, I haven't. Okay. So i give you the brief rundown, and it, it really isn't more complex than this. But in the Me Too era that we live in, the the classic Christmas song that was written in 1944 called Baby It's Cold Outside uh, there were some people that created some outrage at radio station in Cleveland, San Francisco, some other cities, and they said, "Hey, pay attention to the lyrics. That, that song is all about date rape. It should be taken off the radio." So they ra- raised enough fuss that uh, some of the radio stations took it down. Oh. And it's a classic Christmas song, and. And I looked into it, and I started to feel a lot of feelings about it. And 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 what I so I decided to make a video, and what because what I was realizing at a societal level, the the Me Too movement, which has been going on for about a year at this point. And what is what is the Me Too movement? I'm sorry to be so ignorant. You're so unplugged. You're there on your mountainside. Like, what the hell's going on? So the Me Too movement, it started when all these women came out against Harvey Weinstein for his like really like shitty behavior, sexual violations, rape, you know, forcing women to sleep with him to get parts in movies. And then, you know, so, so it, it, it was a great movement to get women to speak out when men are, uh, you know, in a way sexually harassing them, using their position of power to uh, degrade women. Mm-hmm. So someone put out a hashtag and said, hey, if this has ever happened to you, just comment in Me Too. Right. Okay, so yeah. that's how the Me Too movement started. And man, I so support the Me Too movement. Like, fuck yeah. You know, the we live in a time no one should be sexually oppressed. No one should have, you know, a man or a woman standing over them, say, using them sexually in order to, like, you can't move ahead unless you do this sexual favor. So I'm so grateful for the Me Too movement. However, what I was finding is, and, and other people have as well, there are people out who are all about self-victimization making themselves feel bad, blaming other people, and then getting outraged at society. Yes, I, I've, so I've I, had plenty of those in my classes because, you know, I I crack <laughs> jokes now and then, and they're never meant to be in that vein. But, yeah. uh, you know, my humor is not quite the same as yours sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there there are people who dwell in victimization yet will – try to hide under the cover of being part of the genuine Me Too movement. And it's very different. When you're trying to kill someone else's creativity, you become a connoisseur of outrage, always looking for the next person to get angry with because you haven't dealt with your own pain. That is not like you're not being oppressed by other people. You are oppressing yourself. 
so anyway, I start this video off, you know, acting all angry, like, man, this song has to be taken down because there I was going along, minding my own business on my witch hunt, looking for people to crucify instead of dealing with my own pain. And I discovered classic Christmas song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Isn't about Christmas. It's about date rape. And then I go into a, a, a you know a bunch of points yeah. as an angry outreach person. So at a societal level, it's like I, I saw we need a new myth. Like the the pendulum has swung where now the at, at times the in this case the Me Too movement is being used destructively, not constructively. So I, I wanted to create some balance and shine the light on some of this shadow. So the shadow can start to be dissolved. So I did that most recently through my baby it's cold outside video. So that tells me you're tapping into the, you know, the collective unconscious as Jung would call it. And you're, um, you're using the, uh, chief feathers that are invisible, but on your head to, uh, use your bravery, your self-awareness and your courage to, uh, help illuminate a situation for healing. Yeah, I think so. I appreciate you seeing it that way. And, and yeah, there, you know, the, the tapping into social issues that are going on in the collective conscious and unconscious, that's something the past probably year and a half I've been doing more and more of And it. It, it takes more bravery rather than only portraying my personal issues. I mean, that, that takes bravery unto itself, but then portraying issues that go on at a social level, you know, then you have people who start to get upset because you're showing them things about themselves. They'd rather pretend they're not true. So they get angry at the mirror instead of looking at who's looking in the mirror. Um, so it does take more bravery and, but that that I've been feeling the call, and it actually, as I was writing out the "Baby It's Cold Outside" video, I had a lot of fears. I had to sit with and and feel instead of avoiding. I had to sit with and feel, and so I could go deeper into the video, like the fear of shit. What if what if people start to witch hunt me and accuse me of being against the Me Too movement and accuse me of being misogynistic and they can string me up. You know, you get enough social justice warriors together and they can like really crucify anyone. And so they killed Jesus. (laughs) Jesus killed by social justice warriors. So like the fear is like, yeah, crucified in whatever form that might take, Um, which told me I was the, 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 the depth of purpose I'm finding is oftentimes proportional to the amount of fear I have to go through in order to voice it. I, I, I'm proud of you. Yeah. That's, that's a realization that most people don't come to in their life. But that's, that very realization is inherent in my experience in the spiritual path yeah. of healing the ego and the shadow because – the ego violently resists uh, any legitimate spiritual uh, practice because all spiritual practices are connecting you to a greater and greater whole until you realize, oh my God, this ego thing's 
it's a it's a hell of an illusion. And uh, as we grow spiritually, we we see ourselves in the people that are hungry. We see the need to give water. We see the need to stand up and risk being crucified. And that that is, as you know, that that makes the ego wiggle, squirm, and want to run and hide and pretend to be uh, a me tooer for the wrong reasons, just to to avoid the spotlight uh, and and the potential pain. And and so. Uh, you know, JP, you're still blowing my mind with your willingness to uh, live true to your to your mission, your heart, your values, and uh, you know the Hindu in me wants to kiss your feet, buddy. <laughs> awesome, my friend. Oh, I appreciate that, and it takes one to know one. I mean, I know in in your own way. I, I look at the evolution of your career not that i was around for your whole career but shit i guess at this point maybe half of it or close to it you know i I look at you know at times people would want to crucify you like you're talking about doing exercise on a swiss ball what are you a sissy what's wrong with you oh yeah and then and then you know you speaking truths about nutrition like hey bro I mean, you were the first person who I saw advocate eating large amounts of healthy fat, you know, in accordance with your individual physiology. But, you know, then people want to crucify you for advocating fat. Paul, you're going to give people heart disease. Then, then, you know, you show up and people are expecting like, hey, teach us about health and exercise. And you do through the language of spirituality. Yeah. So they want to crucify you for that. And of course, like for every one person that wants to crucify you, there's a thousand that just praise you and want to thank you. But the, the ones that want to crucify you yells the loudest. So, you know, I've seen you do that, have a willingness to hold the edge of your truth, hold the edge of upholding the message of your kingdom, being the king that truly serves the crown that's on your head, that represents your purpose, even when people are screaming at you. And I've seen you do that in bigger and bigger and bigger ways through your career. So I know, you know, you can recognize it in me because you've been there. Oh, yeah. And still are. Yeah, I I live there. You know, I still get I've I've got a nice collection of letters of Christians telling me I'm going to burn in hell, that I'm the devil. Um, I've got letters from Christians saying they put me on prayer circles. They used to think I was an intelligent man, but now they can see I've lost my mind. Uh, you know, because I have two wives, I've been heavily attacked for that. When I became a vegetarian, yeah. because my soul told me, I think you remember that, I... My soul told me to become a vegetarian and I was waking up at three o'clock in the morning and my soul was guiding me uh, into deep spiritual practices and shamanic practices with rattles, drums. Uh, I was learning various chants from spirit and and I would, you know, I had to do it early in the morning because my life was so busy. I couldn't get away from people. I couldn't find a quiet moment. But you know me, I'm pretty true to my my diet needs and I'm not by any means a vegetarian by nature. But I listened to my soul, and it was one year to the day, paradoxically. And I would be hungry as hell. I was losing muscle mass, and people were writing me nasty letters. Students of mine were saying, you're such a hypocrite. You're going against everything you taught us. I'm like, I am doing exactly what I taught you. Tap into your soul. Listen to your body. 
There's a reason I'm being told to be a vegetarian. And one of the reasons was is I had to explore vegetarianism honestly so I could evaluate it authentically. And also because it did have a very powerful clearing effect on my mind. And I had many deep experiences like the one I told you about in Toronto that were very, very powerful and riveting and just opened me up to a whole new dimension. And it was important to me to honor these things because, you know, uh, some people out there think, oh, Paul Cech, he just uses psychedelics and think he's a God guru or something. I'm like, no, I've gone every bit as deep on no psychedelics as I ever have on any psychedelics. And I had to honor that in myself so I didn't become um, aligned with an ideology that might be dangerous for other people to follow. And man, I got attacked like hell. And then when I, yeah. then when I got... Uh, I found my Tai Chi pants that I like to wear. People started writing me nasty letters saying oh, I turned into a hippie. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, people are fucking ruthless. One minute they love you. And, you know, as long as they're learning how to make their abs look good, they love you. But as soon as you tell them a little bit of truth that goes against their dogma, they want to just fucking kill you. And and so, I, you know, yes, I've walked this path with you. And that's why I can recognize where you're at and what you're doing and and I, I'm, you know, just know that should they uh, strap you up and want to crucify you, I will ask them to plant a second pole and I'll mount myself to it and go the ride with you because you've already shown me that you can handle my pain and I'll, I'll do the same for you. Which leads me to a, a, a question that it's a bit deep and I, I think you're, you, you know, I, you, you handle it how you want. One of my favorite definitions of myth, and I wish I could remember who wrote it, but I forgot the author's name, but it's very powerful. Um, myth is something that never happened, but is happening all the time. So what do you feel represents the never happened that is happening all the time in our culture today, JP? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the, the never happened. I think when we speak of myth, um, when we speak about a myth, we're, we're talking about an archetypal expression. And we talk about that through the story. You know, it might be a story of the, the Greek gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that story at a literal level never happened. Yet the the truth, the archetypal pattern is the truth. And that archetypal pattern happens all the time, not in the literal way of, you know, Achilles or whoever else, whoever the myth is about. It doesn't happen that literal way. But how it's happening, the gift is for us to, to discover, or it may be better said than the gift, the call is for us to learn to recognize in our life how that story is actually happening. The story we heard never happened, but it, the, the story that we're living, man, that, that's the one that's happening. Yeah. Um, and the, there was a, a, what was the end part of the, that question um, about our society today? I, well, I was saying, uh, you know, looking at the definition of myth is something that never happened, but is happening all the time. What do you feel represents the never happened? but is happening all the time in our culture today. Yeah. You know, 
here's where my mind goes with that. Um, Living in a world of recognized oneness and and I just want to I want to reference the book Conversations with God, book one by Neil Donald. Bush. Loved it, yeah. That was, that was another book. I was twenty when you recommended that to me. Yeah, <laughs> um, man, we did time warp today. <laughs> I've turned so, you on to some good stuff, baby. <laughs> you have. In that book, they they, they talk uh, they talk about how we're going towards a world of oneness where the the lines of illusion of separation are being dissolved. And I think that's really happening. I mean, shit, you just look at the internet. You know, there there is so much connection, therefore, like, connected oneness that happens through the internet. Put up a video and a week later, you know, six million people might have watched it. That is, I mean, we're living in a world of oneness. Yes. So I, 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 I think the, the, the level of connectivity and union, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, of union that we're living in today, I don't think has ever happened before. And I, I think it's also in a way hard to see present day because there's still separation. We're not like perfectly pure, pristine oneness and absolute consciousness. There's still a lot of progress to go. So you look at the separation of you know different countries being oppressed, different people being oppressed, wars, certainly there's still separation. So if you, you know, we always see what we're looking for. So if you're looking for the separation, you'll see that and you'll stay blind to the beautiful unionization that's really accelerating on our planet. But I think it's there. And I think it's worth looking at, not to blind ourselves to the separation, like let's be cognizant of that and, and learn to heal the division uh, so we can become more connected, less combative, you know, less my right hand is inflicting violence on my left hand, just thinking they're different people and, and more realizing like I am you, you are me and, and we're actually connected here. So let me treat you the way I want to be treated and let me treat myself the way I want to treat you. So I think we're, we're living in a time of accelerated oneness. And, and I think, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. So it's like, we're the frog boiling in union, unionized waters. You know, you wake up from 1991 or 1999 and, you know, year after year, the, the sense of oneness around the world just gradually increases, you know, and because it's gradual, we might not notice it. But I mean, if you do a reality check, our world today, is dramatically more connected than we were in the 90s and then we were in the 50s then we were were in the 1800s so i think this is a very special time and i don't even know if this answer is actually speaking to the well, I think, question i think yet. it is i think it is but it makes me want to ask you a question or or or, or share a uh, an observation and and yeah. and i think you know i i say there's no such thing as government anymore we just have a corporate headquarters and I was yeah. I was watching The Voice last night, and I was just like shocked again. I, I'm forever shocked when I do watch television, which is rare, at all these drug co- co- commercials. And you know, like uh, you know, if you have uh, 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 a wart on your toe, take this; it'll cure it. The only side effects is cancer and respiratory failure and liver failure. And I'm like, who in the fuck buys this shit? 
What doesn't, I mean, what is going on in our world? But the point I'm getting to is, you know, the, the mainstream media is owned by just a few people. I mean, there's just a few very wealthy people that are controlling probably about 90% of the main, what people on television, what people see on television. And most of it is fear mongering and, and, and they, they use the fact that the human nervous system is oriented to prioritize fear over celebration, over joy. And I think, wouldn't it be like, look at how much airtime idiots get. I mean, and I'm speaking about the rest of myself, but look, like, look at all the garbage Donald Trump puts out there. Look at all the, like, I've sit sometimes and I go like, I've just, I've got like 150 channels and I can't find anything to watch but trash that I can't even believe anybody else watches. And most of it is just dark, negative, like the baseball wives, the mob wives. I'm like, what the hell are we showing people here? What are we programming them with? And so I feel like if we gave equal time to that stuff, but flipped it over so that we showed just as much of women celebrating the birth of their children, kids, Achieving milestones in school, people having breakthroughs and realizations. I mean, that's why I love The Voice because it's such a soul show. You see people scared out of their minds, giving it everything they've got, and it just breaks my heart open. So, I, I, what I'm sharing here is I, I feel that part of the challenge that humanity faces today is that they spend too much time. Um, looking at screens that don't show them how much beauty there is in the world and how much love there is in the world and how much opportunity there is in the world. And they actually start believing that the, the make-believe world of television is actually a representation of what's really happening in the world. Yeah, to use the words of Mother Teresa, it's fucked. <laughs> but... I, Mother, I think it's. I've got her on the wall here. You know, I've got a sculpture of her right here on the wall. So she yeah, she heard she, you. She was she was naughty. Come on, you you got to be as dirty as you are saintly. Uh, she, yeah, yeah balances. She she it, said you know, it doesn't shock me. She said. <laughs> I I agree with everything you said. It it really is fucked. However. Just to throw a note of what I think is sensible optimism in it, I think it's getting better because like present day, it is, I mean, yes, there's 150 channels of pure crap funded by drug companies and really agendas that are mostly not oriented around bringing power to everyone. It's more, you know, the, the power of the few that's, uh, that fuels the agendas. But you look at the amount of time, especially the younger generations, the, the amount of time that the younger generations don't spend on network TV. And instead, they are proactively going after what they want to watch on Netflix or YouTube. Now, granted, is there absolute shit on Netflix and YouTube? Yes. And is there absolutely amazing, uh, empowering programs on Netflix and Flicks and YouTube. Yes. So the, the, the cool thing is I think people are becoming more proactive with choosing what they want to watch. Whereas like when I was a kid, there was no proactivity there and we didn't even have cable. So we had like three channels 
So you just sat back and I'll own it. As a kid, I would sit back and I would be passively spoon fed whatever was on one of those three channels. Yeah. So, and that's, man, thank God that's changing. And yes, the, the TV paradigm is still there, but it's becoming less and less and less significant, which I think is cool. So, you know, you look on, you know, YouTube, you might find like a Prince EA video with a hundred million views. And it's just such an empowering message. You're like, you're not going to find anything like that on TV. No. And, and so the other thing too, is that the variety on all the various uh, social media outlets like YouTube and Pinterest and all the other ones, there's many I don't even know about, but um, you can actually now flip the coin. Like if somebody says something on television and you search the same thing with a web search, you can come up with 40 or 50 opinions that give you the other side of the story. But before we had that, you pretty much didn't have you, – you, you run the greater risk of believing what somebody said to you in the name of science or in the name of religion or – what God wants, but now you can find uh, any any number of experts that are very deep, like a Jack Cornfield or the Dalai Lama or uh, you know uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to uh, look into something, so you can come to your own truth and you run less the risk of believing uh, perceived authority as as the end all the facts. You know, so I think. I think there's a lot of uh, beauty there. Yeah, 100%. You know, Carl Jung said something quite powerful. I didn't have this in our our plan, but I want to share it with you. Carl Jung said, no man is fully alive until he has the power to destroy himself. And I think that right Mm. now we're right there. I mean, we have a nuclear arsenal that would destroy the planet. We've got like something like – 179 times the nuclear power it would take to completely atomize the planet. Um, there's over. Well, at least we wouldn't suffer while we die. Well, you know, not uh, not for not quick. for long. Um, it'd just be yeah. like a cosmic fart, and nobody would know who did it. Um, Jesus. But uh, you know, pe- people now. Uh, you know, you can kill yourself with drugs. You can kill yourself with work. You can kill yourself with. Uh, video game addictions you can kill yourself with sex addictions i mean we're, we're we're kind of at a point now where we have developed so many scientific technologies but we haven't developed the maturity to know how to handle them mm. it seems like there's enough going on that we we have reason to pool together and talk to each other and you know just like you're standing up for the people that need water and, and need more love and support. I think that I think all of us are at a point now where we realize we technology is a double-edged sword and we can use the internet and a lot of technologies to either wipe the planet out, which we're on the edge of, or we can use it to connect and bond, which is one of the reasons I'm I'm doing these podcasts because uh, you know, I feel people need to hear more of the kinds of things that we're talking about um, and use the power that spirit gives us to create beauty and to create love and to create connection instead of creating world wars and more nationalism. And part of the reason I was talking to you about myth, because uh, all the great 
myth experts throughout uh, time have all said very clearly when a culture loses its myth, it's on its way out. But with yeah. every myth comes a counter myth. There's a, you know, if, if your myth is that gluten doesn't cause problems and you should just eat it, your counter myth is your, is the gas coming out of you and the swollen belly and the back pain that you have. So I think that our counter myth is creating enough sense of isolation, fear and pain that it's forcing us to, to look into social media and find other opinions and even find people like yourself that can deliver the message in ways that aren't so painful to hear. And we can at least laugh at ourselves a little bit. But before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you, how has being become, uh, being married affected your inner process for developing your comedy? Yeah. You know, I love to speak about what's true for me. So marriage is a, it's a new phase of life for me. And, and Amber and I, we, our marriage wasn't about like, let's go through the motions and put on this little show for our families and friends. No, not at all. It was a very meaningful rite of passage. Her and I were very deliberate and uh, intentful on uh, knowing in creating what our marriage represented for us. So in other words, it's a true rite of passage. It, I moved into a new dimension of myself through the outer movement into a new dimension with Amber. And, you know, there, there's, so <laughs> with the comedy, you know, I'm coming to things that are, you know, now true for me in married life that, you know, is, they're ripe for comedy where I've heard other comedians before, like they're married, they're talking about stuff that's going on in marriage, like the little nuances that are always there, but nobody really talks about. So, but I couldn't really relate to them before because um, I wasn't married. Yeah. And now that I am, I'm finding like, okay, I'm finding what my version of those little nuances are. Because one of the things that was really awakened in me when Amber and I married was this, I want to say like primal, like a very strong desire to provide and support yeah. Amber. Yeah. Like a really champion her in her life's purpose. Like right now she's down in Costa Rica away from me for a week and a half. She's leading an ayahuasca retreat experience with one of her groups. And like, I don't love being away from her for a week and a half, but man, I really want to encourage her when her heart calls her to, you know, live her purpose, whether that's away from me for two weeks, a month or a day. It's like, babe, yeah, you go do that. I want to support you. And even like at the financial level, just this primal thing was really awakened in me to, you know, want to be the provider, be the supporter, um, and, and really realize like I'm strong enough to do this and, and not this petty bullshit of, Oh, what do you, I contributed more than you or, yeah. you know, let's make things even here yeah. that, you know, that it was always like a little bit of background feedback in, in my previous relationships and even my early relationship with Amber before we were married. So yeah, it, it's impacted my comedy because it's brought me into a new dimension of my own being. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny. Um, 
I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but uh, yeah, I remember when you were in my office one time and you were having some challenges with a woman and uh, you, you know. No, not me, Paul. Yeah. That doesn't, must be someone else you were talking about. Yeah. And, and you know, you'd, you'd had several visits to my office over these things and, <laughs> and, and you were, you were judging yourself over it. And I, I, I gave you shit about it. I said, JP, quit talking with that uh, kind of self-damnation Christian language. I said, let me tell you something, bud. Every one of these women is teaching you something about yourself and about what ultimately will give you the awareness of who your partner is. And one day you'll see it'll lead you right to where you're supposed to be. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, I do. I do. We're near your near near the big blackboard in the lower part exactly and and, uh i was saying to you you know you're on a journey and it's better to just trust that you're learning something from each of them because eventually you're going to need to make a decision and if you make that decision without any experience it might bite back (laughs) yeah it's like, do you want to jump out of the plane with a parachute before you have any training Ah, that might bite you (laughs) exactly Oh man! Well, oh, man. we're we're we're. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long. We're we're we're. We've had a good, great session. It's it's so good for me, JP, because you know we're both very busy people, and I've uh, often I have the urge to reach out and talk to you, but I know what it feels like to be busy, and I I save my emails or text messages for JP when I think they're meaningful. Usually, which is just to say I'm thinking about you or I love you because I I know like. I mean, shit, it takes me three and a half hours every morning just to clear the emails that have already been filtered by my filtration systems like my wife. And I I just know what it's like. But for me, this is a sit around the campfire with somebody that I really love and that I miss. And so it's been absolutely great to hang out with you. And I was going to ask you, um, is there something that you'd like to see comedians doing more or less of today? And how important is love in your life? And what do you feel love is? How's that for two short questions? Man, that's good. Uh, it's only going to be another 11 hours, which is good. My wife's out of town. I'm lonely and needy. Good. So I wasn't going to let you go. Just, anyway, just uh, tell me a joke. And we'll be good. <laughs> what I want to do, what, what I would love to see comedians do less of is talk about this talk less about the shallow pop culture bullshit like jokes about the kardashians and pop culture like uh, it does it, it feels like like taking an aspartame through my ears it just i i don't think that does any anybody any favors i think if if someone's a comedian they have the talent to speak a deeper truth than just like, hey, Kim Kardashian. Um, there, so what I would love to see comedians do more of, like whatever the form of comedy is, whether they're a writer, a stage comic, a video comic, is unapologetically speaking the truth as they know it. I was doing comedy shows in uh, Philadelphia, and in the green room, they there was a big picture of Dave Chappelle, which uh, again I mentioned it 
a little while ago. He's someone, his present day comedy, I think is laced with truth. I mean, he is really a Bill Hicks of our time. And on the, the big picture of Dave Chappelle, he signed it and he wrote a note and on it, he said to all you comics, you have one job and it's to keep speaking the truth. And, and he wrote that because he knew this is the green room. Every single comic who comes through this club will be in this green room and they'll read this message. And I love his reminder, which says, you have one job. Keep speaking the truth. This is your job. Because comedians are the court jester of our time. You know, in, in archetypal ways, the court jester could speak a truth to the king. Yes. Because because he spoke it through comedy. If anybody else spoke that truth to the they king, lose their head. they might get decapitated. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the comics need to keep speaking the truth because when someone else does it, you know, if a newscaster just went on TV and spoke straightforward truth, yeah, he'd probably have his head cut off. Yeah. But, you know, if I can jump on and through the language of comedy speak to like, hey, uh, there's some stuff going on here. It's not about women's empowerment. It's about self-disempowerment that's disguised as women's empowerment. And and I need to call this out. This is my truth right now. So I would love to see people, you know, not just comics, but all people this applies to. Like, let's start unapologetically representing our truth, the best version of it that we know. Rather than just trying to like censor ourselves to better get other people's approval, avoid the discomfort of like, what if someone doesn't like me because like I have like a real like stance. I actually, you know, I stand for something. Someone might not like that. Yeah, let's embrace that discomfort. It will come up and let's not apologize for what we stand for. And let's speak that and represent that and express that in ways that are unique to you. And the the last part of the question, Paul, was something about love. What was that part? Well, I I was asking um, how important is love in your life, and what do you feel it is? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's incredibly important. Um, maybe I would maybe not maybe it's definitely the most important thing and in in practical terms what love is for me is acceptance you know uh, much like I I accepted you at at one of your rock bottoms yeah and to me that was pure love and and on my good days uh, I'll accept myself, which is loving myself. And I do my best to do that as much as I can for my wife. And she does her best um, for me. And I, I think when we accept ourselves and each other, we're honoring the spirit and soul of that person. We're not indicting them as saying, like, you're mistaken and flawed the way you are. It's like, fuck that. Who are we to say? Like it's their soul expressing through the the human meat suit uh, that they wear. Like let's realize there's divinity. This is a divine being in front of us, and we are a divine being ourselves. And I think we can honor the divinity. We really show reverence for 
God, the universe, spirit, when we accept other people as they are, rather than saying, like, your spirit's flawed. You should be different. Even if someone's in pain, even if someone's in dysfunction, like, let's accept where they're at, not become complacent, not become an enabler and reinforce the dysfunction, but let's accept where they're at. Yeah. And even for ourselves. I think love is the great solvent that dissolves individuality or ego into an awareness of unity. Um, You know, I think we need our individuality because it gives, it it provides the subject object relationship so that love has currency, just like you have to have a positive and a negative on a battery to get any current out of it. You know, I, I can, I get to, I get the experience of loving JP because I perceive JP as somebody other than myself but the paradox is when we really begin to love somebody, then that barrier of other dissolves and we have moments of union where we realize that the the real illusion is that individuality and that our differences are actually far smaller than the power of, of the, the commonality. We all need love. We all need food. We all need water. We all need shelter. We all need warmth. We all need each other. We and that's really what love is. And when you look at the rates of suicide and anxiety and depression today, it's like the, the antidote for all of that is more love and less uh, false ego. I, I say false ego because the ego has a real uh, function. Um, sure. But I think love helps us heal all those illusions. Yeah. You know, I think a question we could ask ourselves is, do you want to have more fun or less fun in your life? Exactly. And, and if someone said, yeah, if someone says, I want to have less fun, it's like, all right, you're a demented sociopath, like, you know, like, whatever, let's, let's get you some medication or throw you in nature for a month straight. So most sane people would say, I want to have more fun in my life. Well, to real, to have fun that that comes through loving, accepting, and connecting with other people. All three are synonymous, loving, accepting, and connecting with other yeah. people. And that gives us more fun. And, and when we look at when we're doing the opposite, when we're judging, criticizing, disconnecting, reinforcing lines of division and separation, we are creating the opposite of fun. We're creating less fun in our lives. And man, it, most sane people would say, I want to have more fun. And I think that's because we inherently know fun comes from love. And that's ultimately what fulfills us. It's, it's Love fulfills us in ways that money, status, approval, they, fame, they could just never fulfill us. Those are just colors we might paint on our skin or temporary clothing we wear, but, but that'll fall off eventually. But love fills us up. And I think we, we all crave more fun, whether we know it or not, because we actually crave the causality of fun, which is love and connection. Yeah. You know, I, I meditated for years on what love is, uh, because I needed a way to describe it to my students that was something tangible that they could chew on, you know, not something airy-fairy. And um, what my soul taught me is that love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection. 
to self or other. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Love is the flow of energy and information through empathic, I feel you, and compassionate, I understand you, connection to self because we must love ourselves or we don't really know how to love anyone else or other. And other can be person, place, or thing because we can love our home, we can love nature, we can love our cars, we can love our toys, we can love things, right? And and they're they're a part of life. Uh, our bodies are made of the same matter that the mountains and the trees and the cars are. Uh, you know, we're all earth, water, fire, air, and space. And when you get rid of that, where are you? You're everywhere and nowhere. That means you're God. Hallelujah. You figured it out. <laughs> Game set match. <laughs> Next point. I mean, checkmate. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just give you two quick questions uh, because I know it's getting later for you than it is for me. Maxwell Maltz, MD, in his book, uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, said, success is getting what you want and happiness is wanting what you get. JP, now that you've earned uh, quite a high level of success, has it brought you happiness or challenged your ability to create happiness? Yeah, something uh... – yeah, I love that. Um, it's brought me fulfillment, which is to me that reigns supreme over happiness. So at times, it's I'm happy. Yeah. At other times, I'm scared shitless. Like right now, I'm I'm developing a lot a lot of new stand up material, and that's a very scary thing to do because I don't know if it's going to be good until I'm out on stage with hundreds of people looking at me. So, you know, and it's scary for many other reasons as well. And, and at other times I'm not scared. I'm not happy, but I'm, I'm sad. Mm -hmm. And other times I'm excited and inspired. So, you know, uh, uh, happiness is great, but it's not my aim. It, the, my, my path has brought me a lot of fulfillment and, and something that, that I've uh, that comes up for me that I've been really doing my best to align with is realizing there's what I want, and then there's what my higher self wants. Mm -hmm. You know what I want being like my ego, yeah, what yeah, it wants, yeah. and then there's what my higher self wants. Good alignment comes when I learn to want what my higher self wants. So aligning those two wants, so they're not going in opposite directions. So I'm not just chasing the wants of my ego, mm -hmm. or nor am I living a life of deprivation where you know I my ego wants uh, uh, something over here, but my higher self wants something over on the other side, and I'm aligning with my higher self. So I'm just living in a sense of deprivation because I'm not getting what I want, but I'm being of service to what my higher self wants. It's like fuck it, I think we can have both. I think we can learn to train ourselves to want what wants to live through us. We can train our egos to want what our higher self wants. And it's not going to be a hundred percent on point, but I find the more I can align my, you know, learn to surrender my need for gratification and comfort myself and reinforce all my egotistical bullshit, surrender that and do my best to want to be of service to what my higher self wants, that's fulfillment. And on that, that path, 
times I'll be happy. At times I'll be scared shitless. At times I'll be anxious. And, and, you know, the full spectrum of emotions that comes up when you're walking through your dark forest, part of your path, you're sometimes on your, the mountain top. Sometimes you're falling off the fucking mountain. So that, that's been my experience and what comes up for me on the, the happiness and success question. And, you know, the, just to th- throw in a quote from Tony Robbins, it's just fucking on point. I love his, you know, his unique play on words is the ultimate failure is success without fulfillment. So, you know, outer success, uh, maybe even inner happiness at times, but when there's no fulfillment, you know, that's the ultimate failure. You achieve a lot, but you never feel the fulfillment of, you know, your your soul rushing into you like it's just raging waters filling up an empty riverbed. I think we all deserve to experience that and we all have the opportunity to experience it. It's easier said than done. But I think the more we can continue to go into the caves that we fear because they hold the treasure that we seek, the more we can find fulfillment. We don't find it from other people. We don't find it, find it from fulfilling expectations. We find it by going into the caves that scare us. And to the degree that they scare us, that's the degree of purpose that they'll give us. That's the degree of treasure that they give us. Yeah, I, I really think that you're in line, though, with Maxwell Maltz's definition, because what he's saying is success is getting what you want, i.e. what you think you wanted, more money, for example. Yeah. But happiness is wanting what you get. And what you're describing to me is a man who wants what he gets, even though sometimes it might be scary or challenging or stressful. And what I teach my students in my classes and some of my more advanced classes um, which I have mastery groups and things like that. I say, you know, ha- happiness isn't getting what you want all the time. Happiness isn't mean everything's going your way. Real happiness means that you have a deep enough sense of connection to what is meaningful in your life to be yeah. present with the ups and downs and know that we typically learn more in the times that we're in pain than when there's candles lit on the birthday cake and everybody's giggling and laughing. And so, you know, when I speak of happiness, I'm speaking of authentic sustainability and the ability to know there's something deeper inside of you guiding you that will guide you even when your body dies in my philosophy. So I, I really feel you're describing the kind of happiness that I'm really talking about, not the ha- yeah. I'm happy because I've got enough money to go act like a fool for a while and forget about my bills. Yeah. So like, not gratification, but like real happiness. And and on that same to, uh, token, it's almost like real happiness makes room for non-happiness. Yeah. Like real happiness means you're not going to be happy all the time. Kind of like you, you can only go as high as you've been down. Like you go to the rock bottom and at times you feel deep sadness, grief, despair. And because you have the courage to go into those depths of vulnerability, that, you know, that teaches you how to really root in just like a mighty sequoia tree, the deeper its roots go down, 
the higher it can go up towards the sky. And I think that's our happiness that comes from how far down we're willing to have the courage to root ourselves. Well, Carl Jung says no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach to hell. So there you go. Boom. Come on now. I love that. I just feel like my... My quote's been upgraded. I hope I remember uh, that. Yeah, well, you know, no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach to hell. Uh, hey, uh, how can people find you uh, and your offerings? I, I, I imagine you probably have more than one outlet at this point, don't you? Uh, yeah, you know, the, the if you want to go to one place, my website is awakenwithjp.com. And, you know, that's the hub for everything. You, all my social media handles are linked there, my podcast, my membership group, um, even got a link to the, the Charity Water campaign from there. Um, and also because it's easy to remember, all my social media handles, YouTube, just all the things are Awaken With I JP. love it. I love it. Man, JP, I feel gratified. Uh, this is the longest conversation you and I have had together. And even though this is a podcast, I really feel you and I got to visit each other. And what a treat it's been. Yeah, same here. I like, I kind of think everybody else listening to this, y'all were the secondary purpose of this. I think the primary <laughs> purpose feels to me is uh, our connection, not only reinvigorating our connection, but going deeper in a renewed way. And and honestly, if this recording were to be lost, I would just say, doesn't matter. Such time well served. So thank you, Paul, for reaching out and initiating this. This has been a motherfucking joy with a capital J. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for supporting me uh, with having you on my podcast. I had selfish uh, motives because I knew that if I got JP on there, somebody would probably uh, at least listen where they might be tired of hearing Paul Check talk about food, sex, drugs, and exercise. So they're like, oh, well, at least you'll talk to JP and get us something we can listen to for a while because i'm tired of hearing that guy's been around forever he's like a fucking fossil you know <laughs> well if they're tired of hearing you paul just talk more about sex nobody ever tired of about <laughs> well that. i think you know i have a lot to talk about there <laughs> yeah well the, the human spirit is endlessly curious about yeah sex. yeah that's why we need to you know have it so often. I, I want to share too, before we say goodbye that, you know, JP, uh, you've, you've been through a year, a lot of years with me and I, I can say to you, I think I'm the happiest I've ever been in my whole life right now. You know, I've got, I've got Ooh. an amazing family. I've got two beautiful wives that love each other and support each other. And I got this gorgeous little boy and, and, Paul Jr., who's 39 now, comes to visit his little brother, and they just get along with such joy, and they have such a great time. I got a picture on my screen, Savy, here of Big Paul Jr., who's you know almost six foot three and 39 years old, holding his little brother, and just the joy of it, and the institute's doing well, and we're growing, and I'm sharing deep, meaningful things from my heart with my podcast now, and. I've had a lot of joy sharing. You know, I've got over 500 videos on YouTube with blogs, as you know, that are not just infomercials. And I don't know. I, I really feel that if I was to die today, that 
I'd be at a, at a total state of peace with it all. And, and, uh, you're a big part of that, you know, you and, and, uh, all the instructors at the Institute and the students of the Czech Institute. And I get the joy of, uh, you know, I get the joy of seeing people come to the Institute often lost and confused about who they are and what they are and watching them grow up and find their heart and their soul and create beauty. And you've certainly really, uh, you've really cast a, a, a bright light, JP, for a lot of the students who know about your history with the Institute and our friendship. You're like a, a beautiful star shining out there that helps them realize what's possible if they just trust and follow their heart. So thank you for being brave enough to really just be JP Sears or uh, as, as my sign says, Japesus. <laughs> well, you're welcome, my friend. And I'm, I'm uh, tickled by the, the beautiful praise and also tickled to hear that you're the, the happiest that you've been. I mean, I think that speaks to you're doing something right. I, mean, I think many things right. And I think that's very inspiring. And, and I personally, I love seeing how I think now more than ever, um, and I would dare say this is this shift was brought on by the birth of Mana, uh, two and a half years ago, give or take, that you, you're, you seem more multidimensional. It seems like, Family is now a, a part of your life that you devote more time to. Yeah. Where when we were working together at the Czech Institute, your—I mean, your typical day for much of that time. Just to remind you, you get in your office about seven o'clock, leave about 10 yeah. <laughs> seven and, days a week. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and like that—that that served you well for a season of your yeah. life. And and maybe you hung on to that pattern a little longer than what served you. I mean, God knows I hold on to ways of doing things, you know, a season or two after they've expired. But, you know, you you were like all work. And yes, you got tremendous purpose through your work and still do. But there is just something exquisite that family connection delivers that that work doesn't. And I think they're both purposeful. And that's something I'm, I'm challenging myself to embody in my relationship with Amber. And I'd imagine in the not too distant future, we'll start bringing some kids into this world and cleaning up poop. And, and, and I hope that I can be true to what I think you're embodying now, where Yes, there, there's glory that comes through work. You set aside purpose, get fulfillment, but also there's the the gratification in like an ego way where that's where money comes in, status, fame, recognition. You know, nobody nobody gives you a single like on Instagram because you spent three hours playing with your son, but it pays in a currency that I think really fulfills and I, yeah, so, you know, I'm speculating here. I wouldn't be surprised if, if your devotion to family now is one of the reasons why you're uh, happier than it ever. is. And it's something that it yeah, really is. It's something I, I hope I can get for myself. My, my little boy is, he blows my heart wide open and he teaches me so much and he shows me where 
I can rise above my need to control the environment. You know, I like things very clean and organized. And man, his nickname's Monado. His you know, his name's Mana, which means <laughs> his name's Mana, which means life force. And uh and he is life force. But man, we call him Monado because he can destroy an entire house in about five minutes, man. And it literally looks like a hurricane went through there. And he thinks it's funny, you know. Like just to, just to give you an example of the kind of growth I've had to go through, you know, I love exotic stereo equipment and I've got these, you know, yeah. very expensive studio uh, monitor speakers in my living room. They're all computerized and tricked out. And he loves to go up to those things and just poke the cones right in, you know, and just, <laughs> and I say, Mona, don't do that. Don't do that. And he thinks it's even funnier. And the more I get wound up, boy, he just goes right at those things. And then he'll run behind the couch and go poke the other one. And I'll chase after him. And he'll run to the other one. And now those speakers are just <laughs> fucked. And I look at him and go, oh, oh fuck. It's, it's, just, it's just a goddamn speaker. And, yeah. you know, why – why make a big stink over it? So I've now, you know, I've, I'm used to seeing him running full speed. He loves to be naked. And sometimes he'll run through the house and drop a big turd right while he was running. And he doesn't even flinch. He thinks it's the greatest thing. And then he'll stop and piss on the floor and laugh at you. And, you know, it, it, they teach you, you know, and, and of course I'm already a daddy, but you know, when Paul Jr. was born, I was, I just turned 18 and I was so hell bent for leather just to survive that it was a very different experience, but now I, I really get to see God in, in this child. And I'll tell you what, what a spiritual guru. I bet, you know, the, I, I can, I can even feel the cringe and tension oh. inside of me. Just imagine, you know, like they were my speakers being poked. And at the same time, there, there, as you learn to breathe through that, you know, there he is, the little teacher. And like, I would, I would imagine as you're feeling the tension, like, ah, oh, my speaker, but like getting to a place of accepting and like, all right, the speaker's all fucked up now. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're going through someone's psoas muscle, breaking up adhesions, like, man, that hurts. But there you are, you, you know, you have an adhesion, some, some, increased psychological attachment to the speakers. Yeah. There's Mana helping you find like, yeah, you got, you got an adhesion here, dad. Let me help break that up for you. Well, he's helped me break up a lot of adhesions. One of his, one of his things is he protects his mother like a watchdog. You know, I, I get in bed and if I even start touching her sexually, he kicks me. Sometimes he'll take his toes and grab me right by the pubic hair and jerk on it and say, no, daddy. No, Jeez. mama's mine. And I'm like, oh my God, man. Wow. I have to wait till he goes to sleep to even get a little nookie in. And he just, he is so protective of his mother. And, and just, he just grows you in so many ways, you know. And I'm, I'll tell you what, what I'm really saying, I'm waiting for JP's master to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see the Good. comedy shows, boy, because there's going to be a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, there will be a lot to debrief and express and process yeah. on stage. Well, hey, can I – do you have time for me to throw one question at you? It's just jumping up into yeah, my please. mind. So, when, This is going back way back in the day. Um, 
I, I, I want to say it was 2004. I had just arrived, moved out to San Diego. And I think you had gotten back from spending a week or a weekend with uh, one of your mentors at the time, Rowena. Kreider, yes, yes. Who I believe is passed she away. She did, yeah. It was uh, weird. I, too, I felt it coming. Uh, I hate to interrupt you, but I, I'm sitting here working away one day, and all of a sudden I had this premonition, Rowena is going to die any time now. So as soon as I got a free minute, I called her up. And I said, Rowena, I just felt this need to reach out to you. And she said, oh, Paul, it's nice to talk to you. She said, to be honest with you, I don't think I'm going to be here any longer. She says, I just lost, I've just lost my interest in the earth plane. It's time for me to go. And she died a month later. Wow. Well, that's, yeah, very serendipitous with my question. And I, I hate to sound more, it's not meant to be morbid, but when you got back from that time with her, I, I think you had mentioned she did some kind of astrology reading. And I don't know if it's what she told you or you just had a vision, but you shared with me that you had a vision or she told you again, I don't know which, that you would live till 58 and then choose to leave. And and based on that recall of mine, I'm curious as you're 57, if you feel as though something has shifted or you have a different interpretation of what you would have said back in, I think, 2000. Yeah. And I actually talked to my mother about this too. Um, I, I, I think JP that I, and part of the reason I used to work so hard, I still work hard, but not like I used to is, I've always had a strong sense that I came to earth, not because I wanted to be here, but because I wanted to help people. Um, and I've always had this deep sense of needing to complete what I came here to do so that I could leave with that sense of peace, knowing I finished the work that I intended to do on the earth plane. And I, I used to ask my soul and, and part of it was, is I was, I was just getting tired of being here. You know, I, I, I don't want to get misinterpreted, but you sure. know, I've, you know me well enough to know that I've, I've, I've had to walk a lot of fires to teach people, even the most basic things about diet. I've been so attacked. You know, they, they say that you can always recognize a pioneer by the arrows in their back. And I've pioneered a lot of things and, and I've just, I, 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 I've, I've kind of had this challenging relationship with people where I love them, but sometimes the, the level of ignorance and, and silliness uh, can, can really drive me nuts. I feel like I'm caught in a perpetual daycare center. It's like, how did I get here? I mean, even being a kid at eight years old, sitting in a Christian church, I'm like, wow, how, how can these people that believe God will burn you in hell and then tell you that God is love. And how could anyone name Jesus, if he's anything like they say he would, even want us to be singing onward Christian soldiers marching off to war with the cross of Jesus going on before? I'm like, how did I get to this planet? But, you know, I went through a lot of deep pain as a child, and I had some pretty profound revelations. 
and and God experiences that I don't talk about too much just because the same people that think I'm nuts just think I'm nuttier. So I had this sense of of urgency that I had to get my work done and that I wasn't really here for anything other than doing the work. But uh, I think what happened was is when Mana came, it uh, it made me feel it made me realize that I'm not just working for the people that are silly and ignorant and lost. I'm working for the children of the world and, and that I need to devote my love to my, my boy. And now I've got another one on the way, which we think is going to be a girl. And if it is, we're going to call her Zoe. Um, but I, 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 I feel that um, my stay is, probably going to extend itself i'd like to be here at least until these kids are uh if i can't if i can stay till they've graduated high school but i i reached the point a long time ago where i just realized if you want to make god laugh tell him you got a plan and so i i just uh i live each day just open to whatever spirit would like me to do and i know what i'm supposed to do because my heart tells me to move in that direction, whether my ego likes it or not, you know? And so, yeah, I, I feel that I'm, I'm going to be around for a while. And I also feel I need to be around because I sense there's changes coming in, on the earth that uh, are, it's going to require some wise elders to hold the hands of people to work through. And I, you know, yeah. as you know, I was a paratrooper in the 82nd airborne division and I had a pretty tough upbringing. So I've faced a lot of fear. I've looked death in the eyes a number of times. And and so I feel that uh, part of my work is to uh, help people learn to hang on to each other and get back to the things that matter, like caring for the planet and caring for the soil and uh, realizing that nature is our mother and our support system and that we can't continue to just launch rockets into space and have massive defense budgets while we destroy the planet because we're at a, a very real tipping point right now. And uh, so I'm here in service. Um, I have lots of time to rest when I die. And I have so much love in my life right now. It it medicates all the pains that I used to have. So um, I, I'm definitely going to be hanging around to see you have kids. You can guarantee that. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I'll look forward to seeing your little wise smile as I'm freaking stressing out about my speakers being poked. But yeah, I appreciate you you speaking to what I think is like a really wide, honestly mysterious inquiry. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you sharing about that. You know, I've always shared with you, you can ask me anything and I'll tell you to the very best of my ability, whatever is real for me. So Man, JP, I love you, buddy, and thank you for sharing all your love with the world. And I'm so glad that you just allowed yourself to be yourself. And I'm proud of myself for recognizing the man and the boy that sat in front of me 17 years ago. Mm, yeah, man, he was a boy. He really was. And yeah, it's been a pleasure to grow up and with your influence, your friendship, your mentorship, just all the multidimensional things that you are to me, 
it's been a pleasure to be um, walking the path with you and being fertilized by your influence. So thank you, my friend. And I love you. All too. right. Well, you know how to reach me anytime and everybody go support the kids with water. Let's do this together. Share. Amen. To, amen to that. CWTR.org slash JP. And man, enjoy the feeling of giving. It feels fucking it good. It does. It does. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to make sure I put some money in there tomorrow. And right now I'm going to run home to my little master. <laughs> enjoy and also just want you to know paul i had a, a little bit of a demented vision of you running in the front door and slipping a pile of mana's shit that he left then you're there laying in a pile of his shit with a bruised butt but you're laughing anyway because your beautiful son laid back yeah you know it. it's when you when when it's your own kid it's funny it, it doesn't even bother you i've picked his turds up and the other day he was in the bathtub and he took a great big shit in the bath and he thought it was the funniest thing. He goes, look, daddy, poo poo. And I'm like, yeah, Penny ain't going to like that so much. That's her bathtub you're in. <laughs> but uh, it's all good. So I'll go home and thanks for the warning. I will make sure that I look as I walk through the door. And I'll tell you as we close here, JP, how spirit works. You know, I practice tarot. And a couple of months ago, I pulled the death card in the morning, and I thought, what the hell's going on here? I don't have anybody going through a crisis like this. And so I sort of tapped into myself and thought, you know, usually these cards, for me, they're very accurate. I mean, uh, trust trust me when I tell you, I can use the tarot like a spiritual weather report. And I thought, what is going on here? And so – I was just holding this curiosity. It was early in the morning. It was still dark outside. And I walked into the gym to work out. And I opened the door and I just suddenly had the urge to look down. And there's a doormat when you walk through the house into the gym. And there was a rattlesnake curled up sleeping right there. Oh. And I went, oh, Ooh, oh yeah. So that's Ooh. what the death card is. It's saying be very careful because wow. – you might leave at 57 instead of 58. So, you know, that's trusting spirit. And it just goes to show you that spirit's always guiding us, whatever means we're willing to engage, whether it be how the wind blows or the black cat that walks in front of us, great spirit works right through our belief system, as long as we're willing to pay attention. So uh, speaking of, of stepping in things. That's, that's uh, what brought that up. But uh, Hey, I'll let you go, man. This has been an awesome podcast. We'll probably have to make this two parts or we'll just leave it as one long campfire hangout with Paul check and JP Sears. Make sure you contact me as soon as you know, your girl's pregnant or I'll, I'll have to come chew you out. <laughs> I, I promise I will. I love you, Paul. Thank you for having me on. I love you too. And, uh, Keep doing what you're doing, and if you need a shoulder to cry on because reality's just too strong, I owe it to you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I will need that, and I'll call you up. For All right. Sure. Well, I might call you if uh, if I have a third kid. <laughs> <laughs>
It's not going to be that bad. I promise. I promise. Well, I'll show up at your doorstep and say, uh, I brought you a present. (laughs) No, I love my speakers too much. I I brought you a present. Its name is (laughs) Japesus. You won't. Well, he sounds annoying. You won't be able to. You won't be able to turn that down. (laughs) I think somehow I would. If it it comes out of my wife's vagina, I'll keep it. Otherwise, I don't know about that responsibility. All right. Well, I'll I'll take responsibility for all my ejaculations, but uh, you take responsibility for yours too. Okay, bud. You got it. wise advice to part with all right well hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast i hope you've enjoyed jp sears i'm sure many of you already know who he is but if it's your first time you've just met the one and the only jp sears and if you want to get to know him better find his comedy go see one of his shows read his book um and uh know that that part of yourself is sharing as much truth as he can with you every day so love you buddy stay well Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, J.P. Sears. You can find J.P. on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Snapchat at Awaken with J.P. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at the Living 4D Podcast or on YouTube, search for Living 4D with Paul Check.